What's going on, everybody? This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and this is the Chondrocast, the podcast about green tree pythons and the people that keep them. Enjoy the show. Recording, already recording, but uh, welcome everybody. This is episode 11 of the Chondrocast. I'm Justin Smith, the Palmetto Coast Exotics, and today I'm joined by Cody Bartolina, Bartolini of Terrestrial Arboreal and Forest Fanning of Reptech. What's up, guys? How's it going, Justin? Hanging out, another day in paradise. <clears throat> glad, glad to be on with you guys, man. Yeah, it's a good time. A- this is a, a good one because uh, originally it was going to be Cody, and then Cody's like, "Hey, can Forrest come?" I was like, "Hell yeah, he can!" <laughs> Hop <Yeah>. on. <laughs> no, you know, I figured, uh, you know, it's kind of long been overdue that we're on one of these together, and um, you know, we kind of we got our start in Condros together, right. so I feel like a, a lot of my stories are like incomplete if forest isn't you know a part of them and i would be just i would be talking about forest anyway so i figured well why not have them on <laughs> so then i don't yep. have yep yeah so then i don't have to talk as much yeah. <laughs> no oh man no that's uh that's the truth it, you know usually beginning a podcast you know they ask you how you got started and stuff and the cody and me story always ends up being a a big part of that whole discussion because it was uh that's that you know so when i got my start in chondros and, and for me it was you know pretty close to about you know it was it was i always say that you know meeting cody was was a major part of me starting to get really serious with it you know like mm-hmm. i knew i wanted to do it i was i was spending a lot of time online and i kind of had an idea of the direction i wanted to go with stuff but when I met Cody and uh, was able to be around somebody else that, you know, not only wanted it just as bad as I did, but he had a lifetime of experience already, you know, when we were in our late teens, early twenties to, to feed off. So it was, uh, it's just, it was a crazy, crazy ride ever since, I guess. Yeah. So what was, who got the first Condra? Like what was the, what was the start of, of Condras and why were you guys drawn to them initially? Well, um, I'm going to, I'm going to answer this one and Forrest, you can chime in. I, I would say that we pretty much simultaneously got into Condros. Uh, we were roommates at the time and, um, you know, we had met at a little flea market reptile shop called the snake shop. And, um, uh, I was wearing a reptile gardens t-shirt cause mm-hmm. I'm uh, friends with the, uh, the curator there, Terry Phillip. You know, we, we became friends out of 2006 IHS where I got the shirt and um, Forrest grew up in South Dakota and also knew Terry because Reptile Gardens was not far from him. And Forrest uh, came up to me. He's like, oh, you, uh, you've been to Reptile Gardens before? I'm like, no, actually, I haven't. But I do know the curator. He goes, oh, Terry, me too. We started talking and there were uh, 
you know, a couple of Biocs at, at Randy's shop and uh, Randy Claus is, uh, is this name. And he actually has a, a storefront, I believe, out in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, you know, that's where Forrest and I met where I grew up. And um, Forrest was like, yeah, you know, I know Terry too. We were looking at these chondros and stuff and, and, you know, just talking about reptile gardens and all of that you know, it came up that Terry was also into chondros and, uh, you know, I really looked up to Terry still do. And, uh, you know, he's predominantly a, a venomous and mm-hmm. crocodilian guy, you know? So, uh, as, as am I. And I thought, man, if Terry thinks these things are cool, they must be cool, <laughs> you know, cause they, you know, they, they have a very venomous appeal to them for me um you know being non-venomous so uh you know we started talking you know talking about chondros and stuff and well, that's when we met and uh you know eventually uh, you know we were all roommates and working at the same jobs and stuff and filing away all of our cash to buy more reptiles and more chondros and the first chondros that we actually got um were uh some biox a, a rue green tree python uh from uh michael uh michael cole. No, no, not michael Mike- cole no it was michael uh powell michael powell, powell. yeah yep. so that was from michael powell forrest got some biox i got an aru um from from michael and those were our first chondros in addition to um uh another aru that i picked up from kevin switzer back mm-hmm. in the day that was a really nice aru so you know we just got a you know a small collection of chondros and uh you know we're always on the mvf the morelia viridis forms and just kind of lurking there and never posting just researching getting into chondros and uh you know making some pretty funny silly you know mistakes along the way and having some successes too and all that i'll you know, come up rare and let let Forrest talk here a little bit. Oh yeah, that's that's a you know very very accurate uh you know I guess introduction to to how we got them and why we got them and you know it, it you know for me is the same thing you know just you know for one I mean just the 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 snakes themselves were just you know the most beautiful animals mm-hmm. I'd ever seen you know I mean just seeing seeing some of the designer stuff that was happening at the time and uh, I was kind of in the I guess what seems like now the glory days of chondros when, you know, Maxwell was at his peak and, Definitely. um, you know, the, the MVF forum was, was really going strong, the chondro coalition. And, and so, you know, I, as much as, as liked all this other stuff, you know, the appeal to, to really want to be, a uh, to specialize in green tree pythons drew, drew us in and, uh, you know, not not only the snakes, but I mean, to to this day, I feel like it was it was a lot of the those core players. You know, whether it be uh, you know Rico Walder, rest in peace, Terry Phillip, Trooper Walsh, um, you know Marshall Mendez, all all these guys. You know, Gary Shavino. These these are people that still to this day, you know, there's nobody out there that I look up to. Nah, than than this group of people that really really made chondros what they are and uh so it was i'm i'm glad looking back that that we did go that route and um because it, it led to a lot of a lot of really uh incredible experiences and friendships and a lot of good lessons and uh and plenty of uh of humbling uh 
experiences. So to say the least. Yeah, I was going to say they, they definitely are really good at, at making you go through some growing pains as far as getting into them initially and, you know, losing yep. a handful and then learning how to keep them alive. And <clears throat> once you crack the code, they're a breeze. But man, I feel like everybody goes through that that phase where they get into them and they lose a few and then they get really discouraged, but then they, for some reason, keep, keep at it. And, you know, I think, I think that never really stops. Um, you know, you can, you you know, you can get more dialed in on what you're doing and your husbandry practices and stuff, but it's kind of one of those, those things you just, you know, you gotta be on top of yourself. You gotta be on top of your husbandry. You gotta be on top of your disease management and quarantine, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, te- uh, more and more people are starting to test their animals now for, for, uh, you know, common viruses like, like nidovirus and, and stuff, you know, and that's only raising the bar, but it's still, you know, you're going to constantly, you know, if it's not nidovirus, it's something else, right. you know? So, so, it, it, you know, there's so many things that you have to be on top of and always be, you know, it, it you really it's like we're just paranoid all the time in this like i yeah. like i walk you know i walk around and i look at animals and i'm like oh shit your head's facing up instead of down today what's going on with you you know like when things are going really smooth you're like okay what's going on you know you really have to like okay things have been running pretty good you never just like you know i guess the people that are serious into it and that have been around forever that, that's probably you know, some things that are going through their heads all the time, like, okay, like things are going good, you know, and they're just you know, paying attention to their animals. But you just, you're, you're always, I'm, when, when things are going good, I'm like, where's that wheeze at? You know, yeah. where, where, you know, who, who, who's the next one that's going to look all waxy and crummy and go, oh God, here we go again. Like, you know, we got to test these things. We got to, you know, hopefully they don't die, you know, after you spend so much money i mean Forrest and i have hemorrhaged so much money on these animals and when bad things happen because they definitely do you know everybody thinks oh you get these snakes and you know the bottom line they'll breed oh look at these amazing pairings so you know i'm gonna raise this one up and breed it it's like i hope so (laughs) you know (laughs) but yeah like like people People will get with, with all the other different species and stuff that, that we keep. People are like, "Oh, that'll be really cool," and you breed that. And I'm like, well, "I hope I could breed it." You know, it's like if I could get through everything. You know, you got to get things from a neonate to a breeder, and and so much could go wrong in that, uh, you know, in that time frame. And you know, that's why you have to have a lot of these animals because some of your players are going to be down, and they're going to, and and you're going to have to. You know, it's it's just you know you you hope that they breed. You do everything that you can, but it's like you're just you always have to be ever vigilant on what's you know what these animals are doing and how they're behaving. From across the room, I could look and see if something's abnormal about one of these animals. And it just really, it's just I would say I'm I'm stressed more than I'm you know I'm overjoyed with things that are going on. You know, because even when things are going good. You know, you, I'm, I'm kind of stressed out. <laughs> like, yeah. I hope they continue to go good. I hope nothing's like, you know, I hope everybody's good. So, um, but I mean, Forrest and I, we have, we've had a lot of chondros. <laughs> we have had a yeah. lot of chondros. If you and had to guess how really, many, how many, how would it, how many would it be? Oh man. Um, Roundabout. I'd say a I mean, couple I, hundred. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say me personally 
I'm I'm the world's most unsuccessful person there's ever been with chondros. I mean, I can't <laughs> I can't I can't imagine there's been somebody that and, and a lot of it's you know and a lot of it I, I I genuinely feel terrible about because it's been stuff that when I got it it, it was my dream to to be able to preserve that lineage and those animals mm-hmm. for for future keepers you know one what one of the things that happened you know and why that number is so high is uh one of the commercial breeders uh down in florida who i, I consider a dear friend and mentor had bought the uh, reptiles by mac chondro collection and uh and the mac lineage you know had always had always been something that i i sought after and really wanted and there's also always a lot of kind of questions around animals and why they why they threw all these you know insane phenotypes mm-hmm. that were pretty variable yet just kind of named the Mac line. Um, I, and I and I think what happened was uh, was from, from what I've gathered from John Mac and stuff is he just in the in the early stages of designer chondro breeding you know there was Trooper and Eugene and um, you know a few few other random things you know like the lemon trees had popped up and i think that uh john had wanted to breed him so he just went out and and bought some of the you know bought a, a bunch of different designer lineages but being more of an and i don't know if i'd call him old school but not being a core chondro guy just kind of mixed them together and, and yeah. produced some insane stuff so i go down to uh to purchase this you know pretty it was over 100 green tree pythons and uh when I get down there, some of them had mites and, uh, and one of them had a respiratory infection and he want you know, the price was pretty good. It was, it was $15,000 cash for this group of animals. And, uh, and, and honestly, a few of the, you know, I probably could have sold at the time two of the animals to recoup that money. Mm-hmm. And I, and I get there and I go, there's mites on this one. You know that? And, uh, <laughs> and he goes, Oh yeah, I guess there are. And I go, this other one has an RI. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, you got to take some off the price. And he goes, price is firm. And I'm like, bitch. And I'm sitting there looking at, I'm sitting there looking at like blue chondros. Like, I, I mean, just tons of the, the most insane phenotypes, like really, really weird stuff. You know, like if, if I ever got the chance to go tour, like, you know, Cameron's place over in Indonesia or something, mm-hmm it's this, these kind of weird phenotypes that I would be expecting to see, you know, not, not your typical designer stuff, but just some, kind of some off the wall, yeah. different, different blue, you know, it, there were some really neat snakes and I was so dumb. I was just like, all right, I'll do it. You know? And I literally, you know, <laughs> load up these, uh, these hundred green tree pythons and, uh, and take them home. And it took, it probably took, uh, I kept them away from my main group the whole time. But over the course of about two years, I watched all of those go down. That and, sucks. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was it was pretty painful. But for me, and at the scale of of ridiculousness I've been since I've started in this, I mean, I've that was a hundred green trees that I lost that much money with, and I've lost that much in two green trees before. So, um, so it was, but it was more just the animals and and wanting to preserve that lineage mm-hmm. that that I think hurt the most, you know. Now, have y'all ever it's, met uh, Trooper? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Huh. I just wished him a happy birthday actually. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. he just uh, I, I think I saw that on NBF or something when that happened. Uh... I think the first time, at least, unless Cody met him before me, I think the first time was at our first Daytona show we went to. When it was when they were at the vet, they were in the room they were in before the room it's in now, where there was an upstairs and everything, and uh, and I remember us uh, going up and and talking to Trooper and a couple guys from the coalition and just being, just being starstruck. I mean, Trooper to me, you know, like listening to uh, Trooper's interview on uh, on GTP Keeper Radio, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, they they did Trooper. I mean, that's that's an interview if I'm having a bad bad time or you know I, that interview just like uh that's one of the best interviews i've ever heard you know i think i think uh that that guy's love for the animals his career and then the people that j- just his i i think his whole philosophy and how he like you know the way he he mentored tim morris and how hard he made tim work to i receive. love that story that's that, that's, that's yeah, it's, it's such a good story i i tell that story to any young person that that I work with, you know, I, I explained to him that story of of how that went for Tim and just that moment of after Tim had spent all that time mentoring under Trooper, begging him for snakes, and Tim drives all the way down to Florida and sees these snakes that he wanted on the table <laughs> and Trooper saying to him, Well, I didn't think you were serious, you know, and it's like uh I, I just think that's the most beautiful story of of mentorship and uh and and just says so much about um both those two dudes you know that uh that i i really admire but uh yeah i uh i i, I love love hearing trooper talk and I, I remember us getting to meet trooper and then uh, i i remember us uh running up to cameron and you know like um it seems like every time we would meet somebody really really important or something we, I we'd make a, to, yeah, yeah make make <laughs> a complete ass out of ourselves <laughs> and uh <laughs> And we had just we had just ran up and and talked to uh, Chad Brown and Robin, I remember from Pro Exotics, and got a picture with them. And then we got to talk to Cameron, and I was like, Cameron, uh, do you? I was like, you know, we were asking about stuff he might have available, and I was like, do you think you'll have any red aroos? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're just like, <laughs> it's just like, oh my god. The the yeah. thing the thing is the jury is out on who actually asked that stupid question because I oh, I, is sw- it? I swear yeah. I was the idiot that that ran up and and was like you know like are you gonna have reds like you know he's like what I'm like like a ruse or like I don't know it could have been it could have been <laughs> you like, it, us, yeah. it, uh, who knows it was one of us but was, uh, one of one of our mouths said red a ruse and he was like there there's no red a ruse like you know basically and and, uh, and it's like oh. Okay, bye. <laughs> walk, walk away like, oh God, you know. But uh, you know, I'm sure if I if I talked to Cameron now, he would definitely not remember me. So that would be okay. Yeah. He probably wouldn't remember that moment either. But maybe he would. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, these idiots that asked if there, if I had any red roots, you know. He should have just said yeah and sold us some beans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, so- Cameron's. Cameron's another guy that uh, it's incredible to hear him talk and all the stories and everything. And I think that's kind of the the reoccurring thing is, man, I these animals sure drive me nuts. The green trees do, but just the people and the stories, but the stories behind them are pretty epic. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Oh, I love the 
you know, I love the people, not all the people, but a lot of the people. And, uh, and, and yeah, it's, uh, you know, the good days definitely do outweigh the, the bad days, but the bad days, you know, can be pretty bad or catastrophic, you know, and, and make you like Forrest and I should have quit Green Tree Pythons like five years ago, you know, but, yeah. but like, you, like Eugene, you know, Eugene Bissett says, you know, never quit, you know, that's his thing. And he's totally right. You know, you if you're quit, quit, if you're not into it, if you're not into it and you're done, get out of it, you know, but if you're into it and that's what you want to do, you know, in whatever capacity it is, just don't quit, you know, and any leadership thing will tell you that too. It's like, you know, the most successful people, all these entrepreneurs, you know, it's like, they're no tougher than anybody else, but you know, they, they, they take the blows just like anybody else. The difference is they just get back up and they keep going, you know, until finally they've made it, you know, in whatever capacity that is. So, you know, if you're serious about them, like you're going to make mistakes, you're not going to make mistakes and animals are still going to die. You know, Definitely. Uh, you're going to, you're going to hatch some stuff. You know, <laughs> you're going to have animals that don't pip that looked awesome that absorb their yolk or slit the egg and they died in the egg and you're going to go, what the hell happened? You're just not going to know, you know, um, it's, but if you just keep going, uh, and you're serious about it, eventually, you know, you're, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're doing it. So, uh, and only only you could define success for yourself, I guess. You know, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. But uh, you know, yeah. if you're just a, a, a hobbyist that has, you know, a few animals and a good paying day job, and it's it's not the end of the world for you when things uh, you know die or you know you hemorrhage all the money to to get the animals and they die a few weeks later, and you know people aren't willing to refund your money or whatever you know it's like it you, it, it hurts we've both lost a lot of different yeah, we've lost a lot of money not not just chondros just everything reptile related it's not it's it's not exclusive to chondros <laughs> it's it's just the nature of the business but or the industry you know zoological and and uh and, and public so mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah, I can say as someone who's been, I've only been keeping condors for two years now, but I've experienced a, a pretty good bit of the problems that I think most people experience, you know, in the first handful of years. And it's it's definitely one nut shot after the other. Yeah, you just you just produced the clutch. How are those guys doing? Um, They're being a gigantic pain in the ass. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. Yep. But what what Forrest, Forrest and I I bought these snakes. I just consider them our snakes because we you know like everything was just whether Forrest bought it or I bought it or we both threw in our money. Yeah. It, you know it didn't really matter. It was one and the same. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know I ended up getting a pair of uh, Laras or Larays, however you want to say that, from Randy at the snake shop. They were adults. They were already copulating in the store. That's why I was like. I'm going to buy those, you know, and they were, <laughs> they were reportedly Bushmaster animals that somebody got as neonates and raised them up. And that's what they said they were. So, you know, you can only be so confident for us. Yeah, and yeah. I both, both, both think that they were canaries that had gone green because they had a really nice, that powdery hue to them with that, you know, they, they looked very tapio, you know, to me, but um, anyway, well, but cause, and then we, so we produced the clutch, there were 17 eggs, 15 of them hatched, all yellow neonates, and uh, they were 
they all, you know, up to like three years old, and you know, these animals uh, almost had no green, like a scale or two of green. That's another reason we're like, I don't know if they're canaries or not. The babies, like, should they be changing by now? You know, <laughs> but but they were they were all nightmares to get eating. Mm-hmm. They were all run. They were all runners. They were all they were horrible. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I was assist feeding. Uh, a few, you know, a few, if not all of them are force feeding, you know, um, but eventually they, they got with the program and, and started, you know, eating on their own. Yeah, How long and all did that, that take was, though? How long so of, like, of assisting? I want to say it was like, you know, six months to a year for these guys, Damn. You, you know, of tease feeding. They mm-hmm. were bad. They were tough, you know, and, and I, and I had done this, you know, the tease feeding thing with, with little tree vipers and stuff, and they could be equally bad in a in a different way but um you know so I, so i was not new to tease feeding and i was very aggressive with the tease feeding you know like people are very uh like 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 delicate with their tease feeding mm-hmm. and they're just a little tap and stuff sometimes you just gotta bat them or you know bitch slap yeah, them really with the pinky a little bit really yeah beat the shit know, out of them with it <laughs> yeah, you know Get them to bite it defensively and throw a coil around it, and hopefully they cover their eyes with that coil, and you can like sneak away in whatever you know fashion you want to. And uh, but it was uh, you know those th- that clutch got me so good with chondros and baby uh, you know baby chondros and tree vipers. Like I had a, some experience previous, but not like that. They were tough, and um, I think them being so tough really helped me out long run mm-hmm. with tease feeding stuff because with same with the vipers like you think baby chondros are small what do you see something like the little baby by lineata the two yeah, four tiny vipers. tiny tiny they curl up on a dime you got to give them like you know like the well if, if you didn't have reptilinks you give them like a, a like a, a mouse leg or something right. or a, a hopper leg but reptilinks makes a micro link that's like the you know, and they make a iguana link and a frog link and those things in nature eat that stuff so so more nutritionally sound but um like i would love to do reptilinks for baby chondros and stuff especially if they're if they're being picky Mm -hmm. and you gotta assist or force feed them those links are awesome you know like you just pop them in push them down you know rodents like, you know, other than like the clipping the tails and stuff like that, nutritionally, they're not really getting much there, you know? Right. The Revdalink has, you know, it's like large adult animals and things, you know, like whether it's, you know, frog legs and, and rabbit or quail or uh, iguana or whatever, it's blend in there with all the connective tissue and bone and stuff. So even though it's this little tiny package, it's, it's more nutritionally sound for some of these smaller snakes that, you know, can't even take a pinky yet, you yeah. know? So... If you gotta just pop one of those things in their mouth and just loop, I was doing that with the bilineata. I don't. Have, I gotta order more reptilinks, but I was doing it with some rat tails the other day on the bilineata, and I would clip them, put them in a little non-spermicidal lube, and and just loop right down the throat, and <laughs> and and that's how I'm doing it right now with these snakes because honestly, you know they're gonna get some they're gonna get some size on them, and uh, then they'll be able to take that stuff on their own. Um, in a in a less stress free manner, mm-hmm. like I don't know what's more stressful, tease feeding. Now these things are a pain in the ass too, you know. Tease feeding and, and beating the hell out of this snake for thirty minutes and stressing it out, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to to where it finally grabs it and maybe eats it, but mm-hmm. it might not. And if you just give up on it, then then it goes another 
however long before you give it a meal. And, uh, you know, if I, with these little bilineata, they're so small, you just pull them up, pin them, pop that thing in their mouth, you know, push it down. They're back in their cage, crawling around, and it's over. And, this, you know, it took me two minutes yeah. versus 30 minutes of, of literally making it look like I'm a predator to the animal, scaring the shit out of it. You know, they're, like some of these chondros, you've got to, you got to make that like those Laras, they they were so tired and worn out. They were holding their mouth open like, fuck, you know, no more. <laughs> <I'm> dying. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And then they grab it and, uh, you know, and out of sheer exhaustion, they eat it, you know. And it's like, would it have just been easier to pop something in its mouth and yeah. push it down the rest it- of the way like the reptiles <laughs> would be good for that? Then once they get a little size on them and then they could take rodents, you know, get them, get them on a fuzzy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and where there's some bone and there's some density and there's, you know, like some organs and it's not just like, you know, giving them a burrito, you know, with like empty calories, you know. Yeah, uh, it's funny you say that too, because that's kind of the crossroads I was at with this clutch. Uh, you know, I talked to a few people and they were like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you shouldn't be force feeding anything yet. They're not, you know, it's only been, you know, a month or so at that point. I was like, these guys got to get something in them. And so I was talking to Harlan. And I was like, should I just put a tail or a head in there and just call it a day? Like that 10 seconds of stress of me grabbing them, putting that tail in, putting them back in, and then closing the thing. It was like, it can't be that stressful compared to what you were saying with, you know, tease feeding them for 45 minutes a night. And, uh, and it makes right me hate them. Just... It makes me hate them at the end of it. You know, it might take me two days to get through them if I'm, if I'm, doing the teeth feeding from start to completion and making them eat, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, I don't know how much progress I'm doing. Like if I just, uh, you know, force feed them or assist a lot of these bilineata, they're all being assist fed technically. Cause I'll pop it, you know, a rat tail in currently until I get the, the links and, uh, I'll pop it in their mouth like halfway and let them go. And as they crawl away, they start working it down. Yeah, so that's what mine are doing. Button. Yeah, like once it's in there, it's like they've been eating since day one. Like they know exactly what to do, but getting them to take pinkies has been an absolute nightmare. Totally. And they do that a few times or however many times it takes. They get that muscle memory Mm -hmm. down of what they're doing. They're probably also remembering the smell and whatever and that this is food. And then eventually you go from having to do that to where, you know, periodically you'll offer them in, in the regular fashion until they finally take it. And I, right now with these things, they're so small. I don't want to be stressing them out and just doing this and then like I'm not eating because I know there's a lot of them that are just not going to respond like they'll all bite it and stuff but mm-hmm. they'll hold it and they'll fling it you know they'll probably eat it if I was willing to stand there for 30 minutes while they hold it before they decide they're either <laughs> going to spit it out and so you know what I'm going to have to do it again it's like all right well I'm just you know I did that when I was at the alligator farm with some pygmy rattlesnakes we had a pair of pygmy rattlesnakes that were on display that were housed together they dropped a few babies and these things just wouldn't want to eat anything. And in nature, pygmy rattlesnakes will eat like scent, little centipedes and scorpions and grasshoppers mm-hmm. and little toads and whatever, you know, very, probably very generalist feeders with small stuff, little skinks. And, uh, but you try to give them any of that stuff in captivity, they're not going to eat it, you know, regardless of how, how decked out your setup is and how naturalistic, whatever, you know, you're going to, so. I was force feeding those things for about a half a year and every other, you know, feeding, I'd throw a pinky in there or something, see if they'd eat it on their own. They didn't. So I'd keep force feeding them or assist feeding them. 
until you know finally you drop that pinky in there and then they eat it and mm-hmm. it's like okay now they're they're off and running and stuff so with these like little bilineata and the same thing could be applied with chondros too to somebody that knows how to restrain them and do all that stuff right yep. you know like and not, not not hurt the animal they're very delicate but you know it's like these little guys after the bilineata after we force feed them or assist feed them once they shed a time or two because right now they're small and easy to handle mm-hmm. easy to pin easy yep, to yep. easy to put something in their mouth just like a little chondro once they get but then like once they get some size on them try to work with them uh you know try to work with it like two or three at a time with actual teeth feeding and seeing you know are, are they more accepting of grabbing and eating it quickly in front of you or, or grabbing it not hold not dropping it when you go to slide them back in the rack or shut the door or whatever enclosure that they're in you know and you're afraid that they'll drop it you know just kind of work your way up from there but it's uh you know a lot of this, this the techniques are all very similar and you know all the, all the information is just plastered all over these chondro forms and pages because all the chondro people are so tired of everybody you know asking all these these newbie questions or whatever but it's like people have these legitimate questions but like you know you just you read that stuff and and you just you know apply your own techniques with them there's a lot of people that have a lot of different techniques on things you know um and and a lot of things work for for a lot of different people like eugene Bissett says you know there's a hundred ways to cook a chicken so mm-hmm. um you know but right now with these snakes I, I think it's less i see while i'm working with them there it seems less stressful to do what i'm doing now than yeah to just, them. just do it and get it over with and then you know like yeah you and said. it takes you know, it takes it would take me 45 minutes to to do 11 of these we had 16 but we uh we just sent off five to to a friend and um you know it takes me not very long to go through these things and we have you know approximately 300 snakes in the collection so it's like you know i can't really afford to spend two days tease feeding these things because that's two days everything else isn't getting seen and worked with so you know some of these people that have large collections you know it, it might be uh, less less time and less stress mm-hmm. for the animal until they have enough size and energy to, to bite it and sight feed and take the stuff. Well, that's yeah, sh- that's exactly what I had to do with these cyania from Jordan Russell because he they were eating fine with him and then he sent them to me and they immediately wanted nothing to do with pinkies and he's like oh just you know just uh, force force tails down them and then they'll start taking off at some point on their own. I did that for probably three months before they finally started eating willingly. And it sucks every time. I hate doing it, you know. Yeah, cause it's I not fun, feel, I, but it's it, easy it's, and just it's, it's probably not, the less yeah. stressful way to do it, you know. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's not easy, uh, or, or you know, it, it, or I mean, it is easy, but it's like whenever I'm doing that, I'm just like, man, you're not eating on your own, and I have to do this. Like, I hope also that I'm not going to be killing you by doing this, you yeah. know. And, and but but then you know, I've done it with enough animals that I've gone like reared up to good established adults having to tease you know like mm-hmm. force feed them and stuff in the beginning and sometimes with some of these exotic snakes that's just how you have to do it some of these things like they're born and they want to eat a little toad a little frog a little skink and they're they just not going to eat yeah uh you know a pinky mouse like you know so like you got to get them to eat something and and once they get past uh you know the they're very hardy. Like all these arboreal snakes, chondros especially, you know, once they get past that little finicky stage, they're incredibly hardy animals. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 basically, in my experience, as long as they don't have nidovirus, 
they're pretty they're pretty easy captives not very demanding and very hardy you yeah, know I completely agree. Um, so but how many but uh like forest how many condors do you have in your collection right now uh, probably around 20 okay probably about 20 I don't feel so bad now. I thought you were gonna say like sixty or eighty. I'd be like, man, my <laughs> no, um, do not have that many anymore. So, and you've got hoping, a good bit of Rico hope... animals, right? Um, yeah, I've got some Rico, decent amount of Rico stuff. Like, I still have Blue Pepper, um, who's O five one eight nine. Got some different Rico Blue Line stuff, um. Got some some lemon tree stuff that I'm really excited about. I I had crossed uh, lemon lemon bioc with a uh, 75% copiao, 25% bioc female. So I've got all the all but one that I uh, Bart Ullman has, but I have uh, a couple animals from from that pairing, and one of them's a solid, almost solid yellow male. So I've got that, and then I've also got Brooke Bernstein's sole offspring. It's a green animal, but it's from lemon tree, pure lemon tree bred to an uh, Sid Harvest animal. So it's got Maruk outcrops and Dream Lemon in it. So, um, so that that's I, I, I really really like the uh, the Maruk outcross blood. I think that mixing that in with with Calico and Blue Line and of course Dream and Lemon, just all that all that mixed together. I feel like hopefully in the next couple of years, if uh, if anyone's successful, I feel like maybe some of that Maruk outcross stuff will will start producing crazy stuff. And then I've got a pretty pretty diverse group of uh, Kofiao Islands. Um, I've got one canary that's solid yellow, and then I've got four other unrelated animals. So I've got I think five five unrelated Kofiaos, and then um, just recently this year I brought in the uh, the first mosaic line animal into the U.S. So I've got a a breeder. Oh yeah, you got that one from Pedro. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, so I I bred him to uh to a female, a red cyclops female, and uh she's not eating, so I need to I don't know. Sometimes when they're that far along, like I want to ultrasound them, but at the same time I'm just like oh, I'll leave them alone, mm-hmm. see what happens. I I've got a pretty diverse collection of stuff, just like Cody. So um I think that's been a lot of my problem over the years is like I. I run a rodent business for a living mm-hmm. and that's my, that's my focus. You know, I've got employees and a big operation and that's sort of my focus is and the reptiles are just kind of more fun and stuff that I like to like, like to do to make me happy. But like, as far as really focusing on breeding, I've, I've always had to kind of put more of my time towards the, towards the rodents. So that's my excuse. For yeah. You definitely got a hell of an operation as far as that goes. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's something I'm, uh, I'm cleaning, you know, I've <clears throat> had a couple employees uh, quit over the past few weeks. So I'm short staffed, so I'm actually cleaning mice right now while I talk to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, I, I had to feed a bunch of the stuff from the South, the recent South African import, uh, some coral cobras, and Cape cobras, and Nile Woody, the, uh, the black spitty cobra, bunch of puff adders, bunch of stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to focus on this uh, interview and not do that. Cause normally that's what I do all day long. Like I'll be on, I'll be on the phone, uh, just talking to friends and stuff and, and, uh, doing business or whatever. But I got, you know, my, 
my earphones on so I'm talking and I'm working because that's basically what I'm doing from when I'm awake to when I'm asleep you know so it's like and I also a part of what we do we have to obviously talk to people and generate you know business so uh it, it's like you just kind of have to do everything at once and uh it's uh yeah it's daunting now, how many yeah. condors do you guys have right now cody oh man i actually don't know have the full number um probably about 20 animals okay yeah i saw a I'm handful of them at carpet condor. fest man they were so good looking Man, you know, I tell you what, those ones, those ones are nice, but like just right before Carpet Fest, we sold like the nicest ones, which I shouldn't have have done. You know, I should, should have posted the other ones first because, like, I mean, some some amazing animals. Uh, uh, Francis Gatton, yeah, down here in, in Florida and South Florida, uh, he got one animal from us that uh it's just a really really melanistic animal it looks so good and i was like i wish that it just a little longer and it would you know people would have got to see it but francis posted a lot on the various screenshot python pages on facebook and stuff but uh, like phenomenal animal uh, and uh we you know we, we uh had another one that sold that was definitely going the direction of a true blue like very you know the the the, the most recent pairing that we did in Condros. These babies are yearlings now, and uh, you know it was like a blue line outcross pairing. The pairing was a, a Tim Morris blue male. That that's what we we called them because of the legendary Tim Morris blue female. Mm-hmm. And Tim Morris uh, has since become a, a really really close friend of ours, which I, I still feel is is so weird and humbling. You know, look going uh, back and looking up to like Trooper and Tim Morris and knowing the stories of those guys and then, and then having Tim Morris as uh, as an actual friend is pretty, pretty cool. But this animal was, you know, I guess essentially on loan, like a permanent loan to us. Um, and, uh, it was the male that, uh, that bred with Shaggy, which was a, a Greg Maxwell produced animal from carpet man queen and a lot of good blood, uh, trooper blood mixed in that. And, um, you know, when we were coming up with a name with the male, I was like, uh, you know, let's just keep it simple. It's Tim Morris's male and it's blue. It's a true blue. We'll just call it the Tim Morris blue male. You know, to go along with the Tim Morris blue female. And, uh, and that, that pairing resulted in some pretty spectacular and like really spectacular animals. There's another one that we called November. It was like, uh, you know, November is Thanksgiving, decided to take the thing outside to take some pictures on one of the turkey oaks, you know, and, and, uh, and everything. And then of course, immediately get every time we sold one of those snakes, it was, I wasn't even trying to sell the snake, you know, and you just post it up online and people are like, Oh my God, you get, you know, private messages. Like, is this mm-hmm. animal for sale? <laughs> and, um, you know, they, 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 these animals went for, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty astronomical amount of money, you know? So it was like, well, we don't want to get rid of it. We want it. The money was good. And you also got to get that cool stuff into people's hands. You know, it's like as much as you want to hoard all of that stuff, it's yeah. so cool. Like, it's really cool for me to see these guys posting snakes that we produced and they're happy with them. And people are, you know, just oohing and on over them. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, like and, Bill Stiegel says, that's the best form of advertising. 
Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. You don't want it to come from yourself, you know. Like, check me out. Look at how awesome I am. Check out my stuff. It's like I, I don't like that approach at all. You know, it's like I, I always say I like to uh, underpromise and overdeliver. You know, it's like I'll just take regular phone pictures. I don't do anything with with the editing. I don't even know how to do any of that stuff. It's like <laughs> here's this phone pic, and uh, and 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 they're like, oh, that looks amazing, and then they get it. And, um, you know, they're like, holy cow, this thing is so much better in person. And that, that's what I want. I don't want them to get some super done up picture and then get the animal and go, oh, this doesn't look anything like that, you know? So, um, but yeah, some, uh, for carpet test, there were a couple real gems that were missing out of there because the second that I posted them, people threw good money at us to do it. And, and also we wanted to get those snakes into people's hands and, you know, it's you know, like Greg Maxwell's stuff is still floating around, you know, some of those animals that are, you know, still old, still older animals from animals that were produced by Greg Maxwell. And that's crazy to me, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and that's super, super cool. So it would be, you know, because I might have them and I might kill them, you know, I mean, in all, like, honesty, like I'm like I'm uh, fairly good at what I do here and I try not to let that happen, but inevitably <laughs> it does. But but maybe it wouldn't in somebody else, and they might kill it too. But, you know, if they, you know, because you got a lot of stuff going on. It's like the whole point of breeding them is also to, you know, not hoard every baby, get some mm -hmm. of those out there. And if somebody has one of ours that's just like a spectacular, like, example of whatever, you know, phenotype you're looking for, then they pair it with some other ridiculous animal. It would for me to see that i hope that happens i hope these animals raise up and, and produce offspring i'll buy them back you know and uh and add back into that with some different blood and stuff and that's and that's super cool but yeah we still we still have some animals available and they're attractive animals you know and it just depends on what you're looking for but you know of course all the super high black stuff and and blue stuff was was moving quick and uh you know there there was like the one that francis got um, that's not a, there's no calico, anything in that, you know, that animal looks very calico. Mm -hmm. It's a very dark animal, but that blue line stuff just throws that, you know, if you, if, if you pair it up with, you know, red neonate, whatever, and there's blue line in there, then a good shot. You're going to see some black in those animals. It, the, the amount of black will vary and will it hold, you know, you don't know, but I think when an animal that like a year and a half, two years old has like still a ridiculous amount of black on it. You know, you're probably going to get some, it's going to level out to where at least you're going to have enough black on them to really enjoy it. And, uh, and it sticks around and stuff, but then you have all the blue hues and everything else in there, but that was a really cool pairing. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, and all those animals were a part of that NIDO virus study we were doing with CSU. We were documenting them for, over a year testing approximately you know every three to uh, three to four months and all of them you know away from the nidovirus positive group and uh, still test negative the ones that are, are here and um, so so we learned uh, a little bit from that and um, you know we in the in the in the in fact what we call the infectious disease building uh, we, you know, we have a, a group of chondros in there of, uh, you know, mostly dream lemon blue line stuff with some Bioc influence mixed in there. Uh, Morpheus, who's a well-known dream line animal, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, I've got a few of his offspring in there. Uh, you know, I don't say kids. You know, everybody on the condo people, <laughs> they all, they all say, oh, oh, shit. oh here we go. Right. <laughs> the, yeah. These condo kids. And I just, uh, I just never really liked the, uh, the way that that rang, you know, it just kind of seemed a little weird to me. So I just like to, uh, refer we to don't them say as, kids. We don't say kids. We say offspring or juveniles. I call but, them neos. Uh, That's just, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a slang for neonate, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, calling them kids, I just I, I never really got into it. But some of those guys like to say that. But uh, we we won't judge them too much. No, but, I don't care if they say it. We just don't say it. <laughs> but uh, yep. So uh, yeah, some of Morpheus's offspring are in there, and then they're um, you know from him to a uh, Beok that was a red neonate named Jingle Bells, and. Uh, those animals turned into just spectacular animals. We haven't sexed them yet. They're 2014s. I haven't really been focused on, you know, like slamming food to them or getting them big and, you know, trying to breed them. But they're they're getting to the point where if I give them a few more meals, um, you know, they'll they'll get up to breeder size and we'll we'll pair them back together or back to Morpheus if he's still alive. He's uh, oh, he's 11, 12 years old, probably 12 years old now. Damn. He's a 2000 and uh 2007 mm-hmm. animal is, is is when he was uh when he was produced so so what is, what is that here what are we 2019 that's 12 yeah yeah 12 yeah 12 years old so that's uh he, he's awesome and he's still eating and looks good he's not a virus positive you wouldn't know it totally asymptomatic and acts totally fine and uh you know that's awesome. I, I hope I hope we can get a clutch out of him before he goes. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he could live to be twenty years old. I don't know, but you know, he's starting to get up there in chondro years. Mister Blue lived to twenty twenty one. Yeah, uh, you know the, the infamous Super Blue, um, and uh, that was uh, that was produced by Tim Morris, right? Am I right? I'm yeah. right there, right? Yeah, I just got to make sure. Yeah, that. The- the legend PMBF, uh, right? I got all the information. I'm not gonna Yeah. I'm gonna butcher um, it, but yeah. What how how old was uh was the green tree at Saint Augustine when when you were still working there as a senior keeper? We were man, we had two of them and they were both males. There was one that you remember that one that was just blue. <laughs> you yep. know? It was a Dallas zoo I think it was a Dallas zoo male. And that animal, they they were, and there was another one. I think it might have come from Jacksonville Zoo. Uh, Both of these animals were approaching 30. And, uh, but I mean, the age kind of showed a little bit. I mean, at a chondra that's almost 30, you're going to see it in them. But they both ate and they were awesome. Um, But uh, it's it's so funny because my buddy uh, Nick Gordon is at Toledo Zoo. And uh, first time I went up there to see him, we were, we were back behind the scenes. And uh, he's like, oh, you might think these are cool. And he's, uh, there's these two two green tree pythons there. And, and both of them were over 30. Um, and both of them were uh, Dallas Blue Bloodline or Dallas Bloodline as well. And what the male was, was you know, definitely what you would consider a, at least a, a true blue Um but pretty incredible, you know, just shows to goes to show that uh 
these things can live a long time and uh it's it's crazy to to think but there's definitely something something to be said about that dallas Sioux stuff too because you know maybe and maybe that's some of the you know obviously all those green trees came came from trooper you know trooper had produced them and kind of distribute at least a lot of them um so i don't know if that's why you keep you know, at these zoos you run into these random blue chondros you know i've heard I've, I've definitely heard that at the national zoo that you'll you'll run into some blue chondros behind the scenes there so i don't know it's so it's so cool and it's so funny too because like the keepers there even though they might like green tree pythons they don't care about that they don't care at all yeah, they don't care about it like a chondro person would like a chondro person walk back there and like pass out and they'd be like, whatever, you know, it's a blue green tree pipe, bud. Like they don't just, they don't really care. <laughs> like they appreciate it, but it's it's really funny to see how zoo zoo people are. I, I remember when I saw that Dallas Zoo mail when I first started at the farm, and I was like begging them to let me take it home for my, my own collection. You know, I was like, oh come on, like <laughs> you know, and uh, I almost got there, but then that mail ended up passing. They both did during my time there. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, they were both around 30 years old when they died. So, um, pretty spectacular animals. Well, but, it's so uh, funny but, to think about how, how easy we have it now. Cause you think about guys like Trooper who were some of the original, to you know, first breed them and just how much of a absolute nightmare it must've been to make that happen. Yeah. Oh, totally, and and probably more fun too. Like no social media, yeah. no 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 armchair expert opinion and stuff. And like it was it was like me when I first got into reptiles as a little kid. You know, there was like all I had was exotic pets in Las Vegas, uh, owned by Ken Foose and uh, and 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 Kim, who who was uh, was his wife, and uh, they were like family to me, and. Um, you know, it was just them. It was the pet shop and, uh, you know, like just me going out herping and, and just being stoked on reptiles. And, you know, I, I definitely, I was probably, you know, on the last tail end of what it was like to be, because like the internet wasn't a big thing yet, you know, it was, mm -hmm. yeah, I was still playing Oregon trail on the, you know, the old computer <laughs> at, at school, you know? So, it was just like, uh, you know, library books and, and just the insight from those guys at Exotic Pets. And it was fun. It was just like reptiles were so fun. And I just like every time I start getting, um, you know, frustrated with, with what's going on, you know, on social media or whatever uh, and, and reptiles start getting to me, you know, I just always try to go back to like, why I was, why I fell in love with the stuff in the first place. And, uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, so I could definitely, I, you know, I had a trooper going past that before that do, you know, doing all the stuff with the Komodo dragons and all that stuff for the first time, but nobody's really doing that stuff yet, you know? So it's like, you know, and you didn't have any, but any buttholes like telling him he was wrong or whatever. <laughs> I mean, like you, you, you want feed, you, you, you know, you want feedback, um, but uh but like constructive feedback like i feel like you like people post like questions and stuff and and all the all the people that think they're so awesome and know everything they just want to jump down somebody's throat and then press on them what what they think they know and all that stuff and it's just it's just frustrating so it must have been cool to kind of like be a part Not of that have any without, of that yeah 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 and kind of so like 
yeah, that's very cool. Uh, it has gotten out of hand though. Like it's gotten ridiculous. It's really sucking the fun out of a lot of it, and that's why I, I, I'm in very few groups. It just, I don't need it. There's a lot of stuff in there I don't really care about. I don't have any need to read. I don't need drama and reading people argue. You know, it's just whatever. It's just me and my snakes. Yeah. No. Like I definitely like. You know, like social media is, is is good for a few things, right? Like this podcast and everything. It's uh, it's good. It's good for that. It's good. Been able to become friends with with folks from all over the world and be literal friends and just like pop on Facebook, mm-hmm. get on Messenger, start talking to people, and uh, have phone calls. Like Peter Birch in Australia is a friend. Like sometimes he'll randomly call me on Messenger from Australia, you know, and it's like that's pretty cool. Like, yeah, so do yeah. your like pre-existing friends and stuff, super cool, easy to get in contact with people. Um, definitely good for relationship building and seeing who else around the world that you might want to know that, that might want to know you too. That's good for that. Just, and, and then like, you know, getting on those forums patrol and you can see all the drama and stuff. And then just, you know, cause I'm, I'm always watching, you know, a lot from behind the scenes and just going, yeah, you know, that's probably not the person I want to really be associated with or doing business with mm-hmm. or doing anything with, you know, and sometimes I'll get involved in some rants and stuff. I've been known to kind of get, you know, sometimes I just see something like I can't even, I got to say something, you know, he is <laughs> always like, just put your phone down, you know, and it's usually not in like reptile groups. Like I'll see somebody that like, you know, like that idiot. I don't know if he was in Georgia or Alabama. The video of those two big, beautiful Eastern Diamondbacks combating, male combat. And uh, I was like, oh, that's so... At first, I'm like, this is an awesome video. Like, this is great footage. And then you see, like, the bullets, like, missing the snakes and hitting the dirt. And you're like, what the hell's going on? And then the next video is the two rattlesnakes dead. This Cletus shot him. You know, and like, oh, this one's almost six feet, and like, blah, 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 dude. Like, th- like that. I just get so mad. I got to get involved. Like, you know, it's like I'm ready to drive down there and, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, throw this this guy into an alligator pit. You know, and, and it's just it gets frustrating. You know, you see the sorry, like the social media brings the sorry state of the world up to the forefront. Just see all this stuff where humans are just destroying the planet, and I just get pissed. You know. But like there are the good people, I, I like them. But you know, you just, I don't have any drama with anybody on Facebook, like reptile folk or anything like that. Like I see the drama, stay away out, out of that. But like I'll definitely get involved in like generic drama, like the world, you know, just all these like deforestation stuff and you know, just people being stupid stuff. But uh, that that's really what gets gets me about social media but you know as a platform for sharing good knowledge and stuff i was actually just reading um a paper that was uh uh, posted by jason jones at herp amx uh he does a lot he's in mexico he does a lot of stuff with mexican herp to fauna he just posted a really good article um about uh both rancus raleigh the raleigh oh yeah i read that that was great good article yeah it was. very good right and so like that kind of stuff social media is great for i was right before i called in i was reading that i was like this is man this is gold everything right? those guys do is awesome like that's one of the pages i really enjoy just hopping on you know periodically and seeing what what new stuff they've got and 
and they're always providing good content. Yeah, they seem like yeah. they're doing good stuff. It's always informational content, and uh, I really like that. Those guys are doing awesome stuff. Um, and uh, but yeah, it's like, uh, but with the Condro stuff, it's like, you know, I it's just to me, it's so redundant. Like a bunch of new guys are are coming in, you know, and they're just, you know, it's just the the, the rehashing of all the. This stuff that you've seen on the actual MVF Morelia Yuku mm-hmm. forms um, that, uh, you know, all these guys did, you know, talked about 15 years ago or whatever. And everybody's just like, I, you just see it over and over again. And you're just like, you just get desensitized to it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, I'll hop on there, see a post, and like, whatever. And you'll be like, oh, check out this snake. And then, like, I'm just cynical and its head will be like postured up. I'm like, that snake looks like it's got nidovirus and whatever, <laughs> you know, I just, I'm like, you know, it's, uh, I'm just like an old curmudgeon now, but, uh, but no, like I, I try to, um, you know, and I'm always willing to help people too. Like I always want to talk to people and, you know, like I, I really like people that are just getting into it that have a lot of questions and enthusiasm about it and stuff. And, I always really enjoy talking to those people, but as far as like other hurt people, you know, of course you got your circles you run with and your friends and all of that stuff. And it's like, like for us, we just call, we periodically call each other through the day and the week. I just talk about nothing, you know, just kind of, well, we talk about what's going on in the business and share knowledge and stuff, but it's just like, uh, you know, I always call for us. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I probably should be calling this guy back because he actually is going to like buy some snakes, but I just <laughs> I'd rather talk to you right now. <laughs> so, you know, cause it's just like, like we're easy going and stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons, but, uh, a lot of great people in this stuff, but, uh, but yeah, yeah so. that's, uh, that's, that's the thing about it is it's, uh, it's it's really hard to avoid cynicism and especially with social media you're you're paying attention to and you're interacting with people that really you you shouldn't be you know i mean they're really not you, you know you're seeing somebody do something stupid and you're putting your focus on that and then it's uh it's giving you this like kind of negative negative outlook mm-hmm. on on you know it, like Every, it seems like everybody I talk to is like, oh, you know, this community is the worst and, so, you know, so many stupid people and so much drama. And it's like, you know, in, in reality, I'm sure if we were if we were into cars or, you know, insert yeah. random it's thing. It's going to exist sure in any, any corner yeah. or anything. Yeah. But, you know, the reality is, is it's like, you know, the, the good ones are, are just some of the most incredible people out mm-hmm. there. And if you're if you're putting your focus on on meeting other people that are really serious about it and just learning all the time, and you're not trying to create this persona or this identity of of knowing it all, and a lot of those people, I mean, they, their favorite part of keeping animals is judging other people for the way for the, them doing things wrong or you know um, retaliating against the seller. Like that's that's their position of, of power in it. And they really feed off that, you know, because they don't have the drive or, or the, the love for knowledge to, you know, be constantly learning and, and trying to look at it from both sides and being understanding of maybe a seller that sold something and it didn't go well for him or, um, you know, maybe 
it, it, it's always just easy, the, you know, the, that whole outrage culture thing. And, Definitely. Uh, and, but then when you get serious about it, it's like the, the, I can't believe some of the incredible people that I've been able to have access to or interact with, um, you know, the, the good ones and, and, uh, the more, can you guys still hear me? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, the, the incredible people that, uh, that I've got to meet and, and make friends with and stuff like Cody was saying, you know, people from all over the world, all walks of life. And then as I get, you know, a lot more serious into it, it's, it's, you know, the people that are, that are writing papers or the people that are making progress in veterinary research and stuff. I mean, I think, uh, both, you know, C Cody and, and myself, if we sit back and, and look at that, the people that we do know and the people that we do get to call colleagues and friends, it's like, man, it, it, it would be like being into basketball and all of a sudden you're, you're hanging out in a room with Michael Jordan and, and, uh, you know, trailer, you know, just something like that, you know, like, it's like, it, it can happen for you pretty easy mm -hmm. and fast in this if you just have a good attitude and you, and you just search out that knowledge and be, you know, when you, when you want to just type out that long response and rip into somebody, just, you know, just uh, go ahead and do what we, me and Cody do a lot of times and delete it and walk away. And, yeah. uh, Oh dude, just... <laughs> we, we, we spent so much time like typing out just like angry responses and then just go, that's, that's not the way to do it. And yeah. Then, I like, do that all the time. Yeah. I'll start writing a comment and I'm like, why am I bothering? This isn't going to change a damn thing. The, you know, the person's not going to take it to heart or pay attention to any, like, just don't, don't bother. Just leave it. Be it wasted, it, it wasted, it's so it's actually, it takes less energy and thought <laughs> to be productive and kind and not, yes. not say that stuff. Then, you know, it's like, you just say congratulations or whatever. Then then it's over, you know. You, you throw out your opinion in you know social media land, and and it's just all it, like you never win, like you just never mm -hmm. win. It always ends up at a stalemate because everybody's got their point. They're not going to listen. You're not going to listen. Like unless I have some like other than if I'm just doing some stupid rant to where I like I know it's not going anywhere. I just it, I'm I'm venting on some like the rattlesnake roundup thing or something, you know, and you're just pissed. But like in a general like like person to person debate, it's like it's just too much energy. You don't win. Nobody wins. And you could be doing something that's furthering yourself that day than doing that. I know I wasted like so much time typing something out just to not even send it. It's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, it, it's just so much easier to be nice to somebody. And if you've got a problem with somebody, just take it up with them. You know, usually it's probably not as big a problem as you think it is. And you know, if you both stew on it for a long time, then you just start thinking things that aren't even true. You're just making yourself more mad at somebody that uh, didn't even deserve it, you know, or you don't even, you know, so it's kind of like, uh, like there are frustrating things, but if they frustrate you that bad, you know, definitely don't like, you know, blast somebody publicly on, you know, social media. I think that's just the worst thing you could do. It, it, like you, you'll have their cronies that'll take their side, your cronies that'll take their side and nobody's going to win. Everybody's going to waste their time. Like, yeah. um, and, uh, but uh, it's really hard to hold back sometimes. That's for sure. Cause like you definitely want to say it. I want to say it, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I just like, yeah. you know, I'm just not going to do it and, uh, and be pleasant. You know, like my, uh, my, uh, my buddy Carl Barton down here, a mutual friend of, um, you know, Forrest and I, 
And, uh, you know, Carl, uh, like I've, I've known him since pretty much we moved to Florida in like 2008. And, you know, Carl, he just doesn't say a bad word about anybody. He's always super engaged in you. He, like you're the most important person, you know, to him at, you know, while he's talking to you. And he's done so much cool stuff and is a wealth of knowledge. And, and, you know, he's never talking about himself. He's never talking about his accomplishments. And he's always into what you're doing. And it's not just an act. It's like a legitimate, uh, you know, uh, interest in somebody. And I never see, like, I mean, he's like, as far as venomous reptiles go, you know, he, he has bed talks and venom laboratories in the Reptile Discovery Center. And... Uh, he works some, with some pretty amazing stuff. Is involved with anti anti venom projects that you know are saving people's lives and other research applications for venom and stuff. And this guy is never gloating about that. And I never see him in any drama on Facebook. I never see him in any drama with anybody. You know, I'm sure he has his bad days and stuff too. But the way he handles it is is probably much better than most. Because you know, I I can't really. I can't think anybody that has anything negative to say because, you know, he's just staying out of that back and forth drama. If you just, you know, like, like Kia says, and, and, and probably got the quote from one of the entree leadership podcasts or one of those podcasts, yep. but, you know, practice being more interested than interesting, you know, and that'll just get you so much farther, you know, like don't, don't try to show off in front of people how cool you are. Be humble and, you know, people are seeing what you're doing, like you know, like talking about like the self-promoting thing and all that stuff and having it come from somebody else. You know, people like like we never speak highly of ourselves and we're always like flattered when people speak highly of us. It's just like or, you know, want to meet us or something. And it's like like we feel like we're just a Joe nobody, you know, yeah. and, and, it, and it's always humbling when people are like, like, you know, value whatever you're saying or, and then they, they, you know, you've helped them in one fashion or another. So just, you know, even if you might not necessarily like the person, if you're pleasant to them, you'll feel better about that. And, hey, maybe if you had discrepancies, maybe you could fix them because of that pleasantry, you know, mm -hmm. it just, just easier not to be a dick than be a dick. But I gotta, you know, I gotta police myself all the time on that because it's hard. <laughs> you get pretty it's heated, hard. man. I've read some of it and I'm like, man, <laughs> Cody really, Cody really unleashed the, the freaking beast on that one, man. He really let that yeah. one off the leash. <laughs> like, my God. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Every day it's a work in progress. I'm not there yet. I don't think I'll ever be. It's, I mean, it's, it's, there you, you got to do it. There was a post or something a couple of weeks ago, I think, and you were given like all your reasons for why you shouldn't have a child. And you were like really going like, this was like a full on presentation with like, oh, bullet yeah, points and everything. <laughs> it's like, damn right. dude. It's like someone right, posted right, a picture right, of their yeah. baby and Cody's like, that thing's the devil. Yeah. Right. Right. As Forrest <laughs> has a kid and like three of our other friends has a kid. And, uh, yeah, I, I ended up pulling that post down because I was like, you know, trying to practice what I preached. Like, you know, that okay, that might have been, you know, I've offended a bunch of people. So, but what, what, which was kind of the intent of the post. But you know, and they're like, like good people. Hey, maybe the reproduction isn't the worst thing. You know, you want to have those good people that are gonna, you know, fight the rest of the shitty state of the world. Like a lot, a lot of, you know, the smartest people are not producing because of that reason. They just don't want to add to the population. But if none of those people that would otherwise make really good parents that could rear a child to actually fight all these morons mm -hmm. and, and everything that's going on with this planet right now, 
it, it's definitely, um, you know, it's, it's a rock and a hard place there, but I, I try to be acceptive, but, uh, you know, you know, every day it's a work in progress, you know, <laughs> All right. but, uh, well, but yeah, I mean, uh, is getting back to, to Condros since that team. Oh yeah. Went we were far. talking about yeah, Condros. We're here to yeah. talk about Condros. I could go all yeah. day about, you know, the ethical and moral conundrum and crossroads <laughs> of uh, having a baby. But, um, since you guys know Terry, do you guys keep yours kind of on the cooler end? I'll let you go first, Cody. Okay. Rock, paper, scissors. Uh, okay. <laughs> I guess I win because Forrest said so. So, um, you talk at Terry Phillip, like uh, his ambient room uh, temperature uh, stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's just asking you what's, it, what's your temperature. Like, what are you keeping your from, temperatures at? Because I know Terry keeps his, instead of keeping them at kind of the traditional, like mid to high 80s, he keeps his sort of in the lower, lower end of the dial. Yeah, you know, I would say that I don't, I just don't really overthink it very much. Um, wide varieties of temperatures. Uh, the animals that are in the main area, the, the native, uh, nidovirus negative um, animals, the, the ambient room during the day is probably 80 to 82 uh, mm-hmm. currently. Because I've got I've got some animals that don't have supplemental heat, so the ambient room heat is their heat, like a lot of the, you know, alapids and and stuff like that. Where you know the mid the mid to upper seventies, low eighties is is a perfect temperature for them. Now you could offer basking sites and things like that if you, um, you know, you're keeping your ambient temperatures a little cooler, so maybe they have like the access to some low seventies up to low 80s um you know like a lot of the cobras and stuff are, are you know actively uh, fossorial and they live underground so even though they come from parts of the world that are pretty hot during the day usually they're tucked in a burrow it's probably moist so uh, you know soil and and uh, they're not really that hot uh chondros the same thing uh, they're they're in that area with those animals. So I've got them in a habitat systems rack. You saw you saw those uh, yearlings. Um, the the night drop. I think I've got them in the uh, upper 70s, like 78 for a night drop. Uh, their hot spot during the day is 84. I don't go over 84. I, I just really don't think it's that necessary. In in a small tub. Now, mm-hmm. like if you had them in a bigger enclosure of adult animal. And you wanted to get that basking in the upper 90s, you could do that if it's an isolated area and that animal can, you know, go back and choose uh, a cooler temperature and have the ability to get away from that heat entirely if they want to. Um, that mid 70s, to upper 70s, low 80s, if you're not providing a basking spot, I think that's adequate temperatures again on a non nidovirus infected snake. Uh, those temperatures are totally fine for us. And I've kept chondros like that for pretty much most of the time that we kept chondros. Like we, we didn't have heat on them. We, you know, cause we've known Terry Phillip and yeah, it took a lot of what he says to, to heart and application. And, you know, Terry's like, Oh, they don't, they just don't need those, those high temperatures. And you think about what a snake is and these animals are active at, at night, mm-hmm. not ne- not necessarily for prey, uh, predator avoidance, but because it's cooler, it's not so hot and miserable. I mean, if you've ever 
been to other parts of the world, desert or tropical, it's hot and humid during the day or it's hot and dry during the day and it cools down at night. Most of these snakes, other than, you know, your crazy racers and stuff that are basically lizards with no legs yeah. and they just dig, <laughs> you know, they just dig those like, like 120, you know, like black racers in Florida, it'll be 98 degrees and they're just cruising around like whatever, Eastern coach ups, they love it. But everything else is like, screw that, we're hiding until dark, we'll come out and party. And, uh, you know, the, the chondros are the same way. And uh, I think just if, if they're in isolated conditions, like 24 cube cages or like rack systems and stuff, you just don't want to keep them so hot that they just can't escape that heat. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, like your upper 70s to low 80s, they can digest their food at those temperatures. They're not going to get sick in our eyes as long as they're not infected with some virus. You know, condors are very tough. They're, like the nights in these main rooms, you know, we have it uh, segregated in areas, and the, the main room is area one, and that's where these condors are. And, you know, that'll stay in the mid to upper 70s, low 80s for the animals that either have basking or don't have basking that those temperatures are ideal for. And then we have two montane rooms, a montane quarantine and a montane, like, main room. And those have independent uh, AC units in there to keep those conditions much cooler uh, for those animals that live at high elevations and require those those conditions. But uh, the chondros, you know, like when the, like the you know the night drop in the main room, like in the I'll let it get into the upper 60s, and the chondros seem totally fine. You know, they still they're still eating at these temperatures. They're still looking good. They're still shedding good, um, you know. And, uh, yeah, we have a stuck shedder, too. Sometimes it gets a little dry if you're not keeping up on your, your you know, hydration or your misting and stuff. And uh, and you deal with that accordingly. But most of the time, it's, it's just fine. And um, But at the same time, if you want to deck them out, you want to put them in a nice naturalistic display of live plants and stuff and have basking, I mean, it gets in the upper 90s where they're from. You can let it get up in the upper 90s too, but just make sure that they can. They have there's enough room for them to get down into the 70s if they want to. Uh, you know, they might stay away from that heat all the time, but you want that heat there in case they're not feeling good and they're trying to fight off an infection or an illness, and they start seeking out that heat. That's going to be one of those ways that you're going to tell that that animal, you know, if that animal never basks and then all of a sudden it's basking, that's an indicator that yeah, maybe you should be up. paying it. Yeah. You might want to be paying attention to it. Like with all of our, our uh, montane um, tree vipers, both reactus that we've got, you know, I provide uh, basking sites for these animals. They, they almost never use them, but sometimes they do. And that's just a nat- after a meal or something. And, you know, they're kept in the sixties during the day. Uh, and, and, and lower at night if we can get them that low when we build our new facility like we're going to be able to get it you know down in the 50s and 40s with some of these animals because that's 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 how to keep them the healthiest See, these animals are from high elevation places and they need these things and you know there are people that are, oh they don't need that they don't need that and it's like somebody's saying like oh just keep a saltwater fish in freshwater they don't need the salt it's just the fish right like, you know, it's like these things have developed to be certain ways. Like Terry Phillips, I love Terry to death. And when he was 
on Reptile Radio and Morelia Python Radio saying you just don't need to miss chondros, not necessary. They drink from their water bowls. Man, I took that to heart, and I'm like, and I love Terry, so I'm just like, everybody's like, I miss my chondros. I'm like, well, you don't need to, <laughs> you know? And they will drink from a water bowl. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in recent years, I have started to miss all these animals, whether it's chondros. Maybe not all the time. Sometimes I miss, you know, accordingly. Like, or like I just, ah, you look like you might need a look, you're a little dry looking, mm-hmm. you know, spray, spray you down um, and stuff. And, and they immediately start drinking off their coils. These both reactus and, and these naturalistic env- environments, uh, the palm vipers to the, the chondro fanatics that don't know what those are, um, you know, they don't have water dishes because they are in, like, the, there's nowhere for me to put a water dish. There's live plants growing everywhere. So I'm missing them multiple times a week, and I'm watching them just chug water off their coils. And these... Like everything, you know, we've been to Guatemala. We've seen the yellow blotch palm vipers in the wild. Every you know, seen eyelash vipers in Costa Rica. Every time I see these snakes, they're just wet. They're wet in the jungle. They look, they're just wet, even if it's mm-hmm. not raining. They're always wet. They have the ability to get up in branches and breeze and all of that stuff too. But these things probably, ne- they're they're probably drinking every single day because they're getting that condensation on their coils and they're drinking it off their body. They're drinking fresh water every day. And even if you provide a water dish and they drink out of that water dish, what if they only drink out of that once a week? You know, they're still, they're still dehydrated. You know, these tropical snakes, they might have water on them every single morning sitting in, in, in wet vegetation and they're drinking every morning. So, you know, although I went that route and never missed it, and, and that worked fine, had fine sheds, nothing, you know, like I had dry sheds too, you know, but no more than I get some dry sheds even when I missed, <laughs> you know. It just depends on if these animals are actually hydrating, and maybe if they're not hydrating, right, and mm-hmm. they're having blown sheds, that could be another indicator that something's wrong with them. And uh, so I'm, I'm starting to miss a little bit more, especially with like some of these palm vipers, they drink all the time. And you know, for not having a water bowl, they're, man, they some of the most hydrated snake, they look like some of the most hydrated snakes ever. They look so good. Um, so, you know, I'm not so uh, standoffish anymore about not misting. I, I also think it also, uh, when you miss an animal, it usually encourages them to move around, mm-hmm. you know, so a little, little exercise. Anything, you know, they're crawling around and stuff. They, they defecate. They might get some residue on them. You, maybe you're rinsing some of that stuff off of them, too, and just keeping them a little bit cleaner by by spraying them down. So I, I think you know, it's all a matter of preference, but I, I don't think misting is the devil. And I don't think, you know, just because they don't necessarily require it doesn't mean that you shouldn't necessarily do it as long as, you know, you're being mindful of your temperatures and maybe not totally soak them right before you're about to put them into the 60s or something like that. You know, you got to kind of use your rational thinking. Not everybody does. But, um, you know, I'm just kind of all over the place. And in the NIDO building, you know, like sometimes, uh, you know, those temperatures are like, (laughs) you know, it's like, oh, this is probably like I'm going to get crucified for saying this. But, uh, you know. We uh, when we when we first went through the NIDO virus outbreak, that that building wasn't insulated. And, you know, we had to get animals out of the main area. We put a window unit in there to take off some of the, the edge of the heat. Mm-hmm. But 
some of these some of these days these animals would get in the low hundreds like 103 104 all their heat's off right because they're in there it's hot you know 104 degrees and they're and they're still fine you know like they didn't drop over dead sometimes like in the winter time it got down into the 40s in that building and animals were fine now animals did die too but some of these animals were very like they weren't going to make it regardless these yeah. things were were in, in bad shape and then you know I, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people could understand this too you've got a, this pretty high-end group of animals and you got to get those infected ones away from your clean ones i mean you're, you're looking out for the welfare of the sick ones too but we didn't know at the at the time at the, with this virus the way it was we were losing animals left and right and we just assumed that they were you know we were doing the study and stuff but we were just like let's you know let's see what they can take you know it's like and, and animals were pulling through and get really cold and being just fine animals were getting hot being fine animals also died but they were also not good um you know we've got the building insulated now so we uh you know it's all climate controlled and, and all that but yeah, they took some pretty extreme temperature but at night it was perfect because we had florida temperatures and you know it was in the you know high 70s or whatever and uh and it was fine at night and i just thought of it like just like in their natural environment, you know, it gets really hot, then it cools down at night, and we had fans going in there and stuff. Nobody looked overly uh, like they were going to roll because of that stuff. But at that time, we didn't want to spend a lot of time in that building, you know, because we did. We weren't really sure what we were. We were like, we don't want to cross contaminate. We don't mm -hmm. want to do this. We were still we were still learning the whole time that we were doing this. And it was it was the best that we could do at that time in our situation, you know, with the funds that we had and stuff. Because we we bought a brand, we bought a, a collection from someone, and where, where where the where the virus came from, and we just had moved back from Arizona, and uh, you know, basically just put everything into a, uh, an isolated quarantine, the whole collection when this whole thing started happening, and. After the first few necropsies, we were able to identify what it was and um, and then get a management plan in place. And that was like, get these things out of here. We had a building. and uh, But so that would get hot during the day and it would be fine at night. And uh, we had the AC to take off some of that, that edge there. So it wasn't, you know, it, it was like 100 degrees at the top because, you know, it's like a tin roof or a metal roof or whatever it is. But like in the individual animal cages, it was probably in the upper 90s. They weren't they weren't happy about it, but it was what it was. And, and to not sound totally insensitive, you kind of write those animals off. You know, you you know that they're they're infected. We're, we're studying them. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but at the same time. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, what can a nidovirus snake take? You know, what yeah. temperature range can it go? You know, we went into that to the low hundreds and all the way down into the 40s and maybe the high 30s in that building. And we didn't lose everybody. Morpheus never even got a respiratory, the, you know, the signs uh, when all of that happened. So, you know, we got to see a lot of different examples of behaviors and stuff and, and, I'm a little bit more aware of a lot of different stuff, especially behaviors and, and all that temperature related and stuff. But, you know, ideally, you know, you're going to want your, your mid to upper seventies, low eighties, 
you could provide hotter basking if there's enough room for the animal to really choose in there and stuff. But nothing wrong with the ambient room heat and ambient 80 seems to be okay. The hotter they are, the more they you know metabolize water and dehydrate. So mm -hmm. if you're keeping them if you're keeping them hotter. Frequent misting is probably necessary to make sure that the animals are, are staying hydrated enough uh, during those high temperatures. Lower temperatures, they may not be, uh, you know, it might not be as necessary for them to hydrate as frequently. So, um, you know, it, it just really depends on where you're at and uh, your experience and stuff. Like, yeah, I think some of the, you know, beginners probably should follow some of those recommendations that are written online by people that you know um have the experience and are you know respectable and stuff and you know all the people that have written the you know like uh, matt morris and um uh forrest help me out here i'm, I'm coming matt morris and who, david david newman david newman you know writing the uh the husbandry stuff on MVF on on those things. I think you know if you're if you're new to that, like follow the that information to a T because it's good information. And then as you get your experience, you kind of just feel out what you can and can't do and what you should or shouldn't do. But in the beginning, um, you know there's there's some pretty good information. Greg Maxwell's book, even though a lot of people like the you know because everybody's an expert now right you know at the time greg maxwell put the best stuff out there on chondros and like now it's like oh well don't feed chondros rats because they'll prolapse we fed chondros rats you don't know, like give them a jumbo rat for like a you know 400 gram animal or something like yeah probably be okay it's like if they, just, if they get a rat they're not going to prolapse uh Sometimes they do though. Shit happens, you know. So, but like, uh, yeah, as you get get more experience, then you can kind of just you know dictate things mm -hmm. the way that you think they should be done. But in the beginning, there is a lot of good information to go off of. Um, since everybody gets so aggravated with those noob questions, and and uh, rightfully so, because some of you know, like if it's a noob question but they're serious i'm not so i don't i don't i'm happy to answer the question if it's a noob question and you know they're going to be out of it in a year you know i i, I may not spend yeah. as much time with them and you know that person you know you know those people that are just they got it you're going to see them at every reptile show they're they're into it and uh you know you want to you want to spend more time with them but you know you you don't find your mentor your mentor finds you and uh it's uh you know kind of like that but uh, a lot of good information out there but yeah the temperature question mid 70s high 70s low 80s pretty optimal for green tree pythons and a little bit more if you want it but uh you know you just have to have the environment to do it and the people that always want to do the elaborate setups and stuff we do a lot of bioactive enclosures and things like that here um but you know i've been keeping things on paper and aspen and you know, semi uh, like uh, natural enclosures that aren't bioactive and stuff. But it, you know, it it, it took a long time before I kind of grasped the the real theory behind the bioactive setups and how they work and operate. And you know, for somebody that's new doing this, you know, maybe not the best uh, way to you know keep these animals without knowing the quirks and the individualities of those animals and how they are. You know, I. I suggest very basic setups for these animals, you know, paper substrates, per, you know, PVC perching and, and things like that. There's a lot of cool three, 3D printed 
perches that are available now that are, you know, for tubs and for mm-hmm. cages. That are, David Brown makes them. He's actually the official sponsor for the show now. That's awesome because they're great. I don't have any, but I actually wanted to contact him about some you stuff. Need to, yeah, David's the man. David does it all. Yeah. Yeah, because out here we got some really nice oak trees and branches, so I'm always constantly cl- clipping twigs and stuff for these things. I know that they, you know, they appreciate the wood. Uh, you know, if you're a snake, it's like, oh, sit on a piece of plastic or wood. You know, they probably want to be on a piece of wood. But you know, for when I when I lived in Arizona, it was a nightmare because I was like, everything had thorns on it. So I'm going outside <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, I can't just clip an oak branch. Like, you got to realize that everybody lives in some really air, nice areas where you could just clip these branches in a clean area and not be worried about them. I just rinse them off with a hose, let them sit out in the sun for a few minutes and dry off and put them in there. But the chondros actually, they're all on PVC perches right now because the way that they perch is unique. And, uh, and 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 the PVC stuff works. It's easy to clean. Um, but uh, but having those in a basic setup first, and having them thrive in a basic setup, and then if you want to do one of those more elaborate setups, maybe get that elaborate setup going first. You know, especially live plants and stuff. Keep that alive. Keep the ecosystem alive. Get that going, and then introduce the animal that's already established and thriving and eating in, in that basic setup. That way, you know. If it stresses out in an elaborate setup, it goes off food, hides, tucks its head, whatever, and you go, okay, I got to go backwards. And we, we've done that sometimes. We don't keep any of the chondros in naturalistic setups currently, not that we're opposed to doing that. Well, you've got some we just, pothos in a few of them, right? You've got some, like, yeah, plants to... Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll do little clippings of pothos and stick them in the water dish for the neonates just to, you know, give some... I don't know, fresh air. And also, once the roots grow out in the water dish, I feel like the the water definitely looks a lot like cleaner. We do frequent water changes, but yeah, a little bit of a purification system, biological filtration going on there, and it also gives you that little garnish of color. So you know, it doesn't doesn't look so jail cellish with just some paper and a water dish and a perch, you know. And uh, but like, if you're if you're gonna um, you know, put them into uh, a setup like that with real live plants that are, you know, established and all of that stuff. Like you want that animal that you want them to, you want to know that the animal is thriving. Somebody just got home. Is that the Dotsons for us? No, it's not here. No, that's, that's me. Oh, okay. they're losing their mind. My roommate just got home from work <laughs> and they're like about to break the door down. Awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, like if you're, if people are setting them up in those things and, you know, they stop eating, then, you know, Hey, put them back in that, that tub or whatever it is and get them going again. And, and yeah, we've had to do that with palm vipers that we, we set up and they're like, Oh, they're not thriving in this setup. We got to pull them out. Maybe it just is going to take, you know, um, or whatever. But yeah, a lot of good information out there already, but, uh, but I, I'm just never really too worried about it. I always just think like, don't too cold. And for me, that's like in the mid seventies, low eighties. And I, I'm not scared to get them down into the sixties. If the, the main area just happens to get into the sixties, if they're healthy, like these nidovirus negative ones in here, um, you know, the sixties don't seem to bother them in the winter time. And then I also think people start cycling and they like they keep everything at like these comfortable 80 degree temperatures their whole life from a neonate and then as an adult they drop the temperatures and then they wonder why the snake got a respiratory infection or something like that it's like man it, put those things 
rotation as a neonate, cycle him as a baby, and let him get used to that temperature, and you'll probably be more successful breeding him too. Because when that, when finally when that mate comes, it's like, oh yeah, they get more humid, they're drier, whatever, you know, to spur that on. Uh, but at least their bodies will be able to take it. We've got a little male Guatemalan palm viper, uh, Bothriacus bicolor, that. Uh, you know, he's just, he's probably a year old and he's in the montane room now and it's 60 degrees at night and he's got basking bulbs and stuff. But uh, I was talking from Reptilandia, he's a friend of ours in Costa Rica and he's got a really nice montane uh, palm viper set up there and he's got a montane room and he says that you know they, they found the more, more success in raising little montane uh, pit vipers in warmer temperatures for the first year and then put them into the cold room versus just keeping them in there. So we, that's what we did. We kept them in, you know, high seventies, low eighties for the first year, the little neonate, and then put him into the main room after about a year. He was slamming food and he was looking good and had good body condition. I'm like, all right, I want you to start feeling this now. Cause it's intense. You know, it's weird to keep snakes and keep them in the sixties. Like, mm-hmm. you're like, Oh my God, they're all going to, you know, because I've been keeping things like tree pythons and stuff that's not montane and not cool weather stuff. And you're like, man, this is really like, this feels weird keeping them at these temperatures. But, you know, you also have to give them access to something warmer or that constant cool temperature may be bad for them if you're not giving them the proper environment. But this animal has been rocking and rolling in those temperatures. And I, you know, I was pretty scared to do it. I was like, okay, please be okay. You're very valuable. Uh, to my knowledge, it's that uh, we have the only pair of the uh, uh bicolor ornatus in the country, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I do know that they're the only ones. There's not in any of the uh, zoos in the country, so it's a really special project animal, and uh, it's very unnerving to you know send them off to those temperatures. Like I hope you do good, but then you got to think. You know, in their environment, they have wild temperature swings and and they do okay as long as they're able to get away and shield themselves from the heat or the cold or the excessive rain or drought or whatever it is. It's really not complicated. It's like it's simply complicated. It is it is complicated, but after you understand a little bit about it, it's not really that complicated, but sometimes it's difficult to explain. Yeah, that makes sense. Forrest, are you keeping yours uh, pretty similar? Um, yeah. So I, you know, I guess kind of my take on it is is um pretty pretty similar to Cody's. I mean, for for a long time, I kept stuff um between seventy eight and eighty two year round in fairly sterile setups. So just a tub, a perch, fresh water every at least every. Uh, five to seven days, sometimes even more. And uh, I, you know, I've just never had any issues with sheds with tree pythons um, for the most part. Now, I also like in my current room right now, I have, uh, I have crocodilians and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that helps keep my ambient humidity a little higher than a normal snake room would stay at. It's probably 40 to 50%. Um, but I always just kind of focused more on on giving them fresh water and uh and not 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 so much on on the misting and stuff and i i think a lot of cody's points about you know 
giving them misting and giving them options. You know, I, I think that if you have a, a healthy animal to start with, that you're going to find that not only can these animals, uh, not, not only can they handle the extremes, rather it be up or down, but they, that they actually thrive more with that fluctuation and volatility. You know, I've, and I heard Ryan Wollenson say this about Emerald Trebo is about him living in Texas and exposing emeralds to, to, you know, fairly extreme lows. I think, you know, fifties and sixties and then up over a hundred even, um, in, in a similar kind of un, uninsulated situation in Texas. And a lot of people get a respiratory infection and they're like, Oh, my snake got a cold. It got too cold. And I just, I, I, I know it's wrong from experience because I have on purpose subjected chondros and emerald tree boas to even digesting food into the 60s and definitely temperatures below that um, down into the 40s and see no ill results whatsoever. And uh, now the upper end is far more concerning and right. you're definitely going to see a, a, a more uncomfortable animal. And uh, so I'm, I'm always concerned about that, but when a room dips into the 60s, um, I think I think that the animals do great, and uh, I don't think temperature people think. You know, again, if you start with an animal that's healthy, which in most cases is going to be a lot easier said than done. You know, of course, mm-hmm. with the chondros, we have nidovirus, but it's not just nidovirus. We, you've got to worry about things like cryptosporidium and parasites and they could get uh, inclusion body disease. They could get paramyxovirus. They could get just the, you know, and as, as, you know, Cody gets firsthand experience with, you know, getting to be around virologists like Daryl Hurd from US, you know, literally finding new, new viruses. I'm sorry. Say. You, you got, you got confused. They just make, got to make the correction. You're thinking of Jim Wellingham. He's, he's the master virologist. I'm, Darryl, I'm sorry, man. No, 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 no. It's cool. No, because I talk about Daryl all the time because they're both friends. But Daryl is also at UF. He's one of the faculty members. He's really well known for doing stuff with anesthesia. But uh, he's Australian. Okay. He's awesome, and uh, you know, he's he always says he's not a herp guy because he. But but uh, I think he kind of is just by default from being Australian because he does know <laughs> he knows a lot about herps. But uh, but yeah, Jim is the virologist. But yeah, just privy to know a lot of a lot of. Yeah, people that, that I don't even deserve to be in the same room with half the time. I always thank God, and these guys always think that I'm, you know, I'm so cool. And I'm like, man, that's awesome that you... I think so much more highly of them, you know. Well, and a lot of the real, you know, and, and back back to what I was saying, you know, a lot of a, a lot of um, you know, to, so people automatically assume that that it's temperature or it's humidity when there's all these other really complicated things going on that, that you have to rule out and uh and that's that's the more negative outlook on it but i definitely you know i i had a pretty in-depth conversation uh this year with with dave barker who you know if, if there's anybody you want to talk to about pythons and and uh, issues with pythons with him and i was just kind of telling him about uh about you know my experiences with chondros and my massive lack of success with reproduction and and uh we were we were going over a lot of things and i think i think now looking back over the years two of the key factors that i was missing with green tree pythons was i was under the assumption that post ovulation heat 
that I should be trying to aim for around 83 to 85 because you know that post ovulation before they ovulate, you don't want to get, yeah. they've proven there's been research studies that have shown that that has an effect on reproduction and it, and it certainly has an effect on animals throwing slugs. Um, but I think that post ovulation, I, you know, Dave was telling me that it wouldn't be a bad idea to, to amp it up into the high eighties post ovulation. Mm-hmm. And so, cause I had a lot of females ovulate and throw slugs and, uh, and reabsorb and, or have issues with dystocia egg binding. And, um, and I think one, you know, one of the best, the, the only source of information I point people towards for green tree python husbandry is, is the book by Terry Phillip and Justin Julander. And, and when, when I read that book and I started to, to think about, you know, what they're doing in the wild and, and really the, the most important part about it for me in that book was when they talk about the, you know, the, the, um, distance that the gravid female will cover as she goes into ovulation and how she will take herself towards the edge of the canopy mm-hmm. to get a, a higher temperature. And, um, so, so I think, you know, I think that giving them that option post, you know, no, no matter what, I think, you know, 78 to 82, if you're going to set an ambient, if you're not going to do a more naturalistic setup where the animal has a significant area where it can choose one extreme to the other, which I think if, you know, if you have the choice, that's, that's the way to go. Um, but I think that, uh, I think that was one factor and, and me not being a, a super successful green tree breeder. The other one I think is food cycling. And, you know, that's, that's something I'm hearing a lot of people discuss in, in terms of, uh, in terms of reproduction of all reptile species is, mm-hmm. is giving them a, a natural period of fasting and then really pounding them with food as, as they, and that can stimulate follicular development. It can certainly accelerate follicular development. So, you know, I think I'm hoping now with those two things that, uh, that, that, that'll be a a huge help, but you know, bottom line is, you know, if you start with a healthy animal, um, they're, they're certainly, they certainly do well at a range of temperatures and, uh, and I, I look forward to, you know, that's that's something, you know, I, I was always the one that wanted to keep them in tubs, very sterile, very simple, because I wanted to keep a lot of things, because I thought that would mean I could breed more things and have more success. And then Cody was the one um, always really, really, you know, telling me uh, how stupid that was and that, you know, they need more of a of, of an ability to choose what they want. And, and, uh, and you know, Cody kind of... Um, you know, he. I remember, you know, not too long ago, Cody telling me about the the John Courtney Smith 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 books about uh, bioactivity and the theory of recreation, and then also the uh, the reptile nutrition book uh, put out by Arcadia. There's also one about metabolic bone disease. There, there are three books that uh, I find myself reading over and over and over again, and they really just kind of changed my my perspective on on animal keeping and nutrition. And so, um, I haven't got on, on board with bioactive stuff, but I certainly, um, am, am moving in a direction where I want to have less animals and have a lot more fun with those fewer animals and try to recreate more of a a natural, you know, I'd like to have a condor cage that, 
was, you know, maybe, you know, six feet by eight feet and 10 feet tall and, and, you know, some natural, uh, um, greenhouse, those, those special ones that zoos have the, the greenhouse panels that led. I just love to see the way they behave. And, uh, and it, it all comes down to, Hey, why am I doing this? Why am I keeping these animals? What's the purpose of all this? And, and, uh, if your purpose is to reproduce them and have a, a table at the reptile show and make some money, you know, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're treating the animals right. But if you want to understand them and you want to, you know, it's like, what will they do? They have this option, you know, kind of like, uh, um, are you guys still there? Yep. Guys yep. Still there? Okay. Can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. One of my AirPods died. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, just, just wondering, you know, how the animal will behave if you give them those different options and, uh, you know, like Tony Nikolai told a story of one of his customers that had a emerald tree boa in a large enclosure, kind of like I'm talking about, and it had some koi fish in it and the emerald tree boa went down and grabbed one of those fish out of the water and ate it. And it's oh, like, no way. you, you never in your wildest dream would imagine an emerald eating a fish and it did. And, uh, they, you know, there's, there's stuff like that happening all the time. And, uh, so it, it excites me to, to kind of think in a different way and mm-hmm. want to move more towards, uh, these naturalistic setups and it's nothing new. I mean, you know, look at Carl Hagenbach creator's book, how this is a guy back in, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s that was selling animals to PT Barnum and, and people all over the world. And he was like the first guy to, to be, to start setting up reptiles in these massive enclosures. And his goal was to make it look as much like the environment as possible. So, um, I, I really want to see what, what chondros will do in some of the, you know, in, in, in the Julander and Philip book, it, it shows a chondro wrapped around the stump of a tree. And it, they said that they, uh, they regularly find them like that during, the reproductive process and so i really want to cage with a tree like that to mm-hmm. see if i can catch the chondro wrapped around that uh that tree but you know uh, you know what probably be really good for that is uh cypress knees you know like you get them out mm-hmm. here oh yeah uh, like I, I feel like a cypress knee would be like that perfect thing to wrap around to for a chondro like that because you could get them in all different sizes too, you know. Like you could see it, like a get a like a medium small one, and yeah, that would be pretty cool to see that. Yep. Yeah. No, it's 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 definitely funny looking back. I mean, I was always the rack tub guy, and Cody was uh, was being in my head. But you know, you you go through all this, and you you yeah, have all these. Everyone's taste change up. as they get older, and you know, as things, I know, I, things I, I, advance, I everyone everyone sort of shifts and adjusts and. Yeah, and I mean we have the tub, the tub rack debate, uh, naturalistic enclosure debate all the time. But uh, you know, I I use a lot of racks, and they are uh, tremendously helpful. You mm-hmm. know, it's like I love I love the bioactive setups. I love the natural recreation of like getting as close as you possibly can in an XC2 scenario. You know, outside of the wild, and uh, I like it. I think it also if you can get as close to the natural habitat, it's also it just makes the animal look amazing. You know. And, they act like they would if you just found them and yeah. if you do it yeah. right, you know, like when we design our bioactive stuff and like where I place, uh, you know, different pieces of cork bark or rock or wood, different woods or whatever. Like I'm always thinking of the animal in mind, like, Hey, 
will they wedge themselves in here? Will they do natural behaviors? And like, and that's how I do it. And it's so cool when I'm, you know, when I'm right in a sense and I see those animals taking advantage of, of a certain area that I made and they're, they're in a posture that you just wouldn't get from like a single PVC pipe mm-hmm. perch or like, you know, just like a twig or something in there, you know, it's like if you give them more stuff that's natural, you're going to see some natural behaviors, natural, as natural as you can get lighting, natural basking, the ability to be able to go from like zero UV to, you know, whatever UV that that's required from your reptile, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the highest point of that that required for them, like to where they could totally get into it or they could get oh, totally away from it like they would in the wild, you know, having like, you know, more, you know, like in the case of like a Gila monster, imagine like a totally desert enclosure, but having burrows that they could go, you know, when those things scurry under the, the rocks and, and into their burrows there, it's moist down there. It's not 120 degrees in Southern Nevada for them. You know, they're in this little pocket and they're in there 80, 90% of their life. And, you know, it's like, if you provide those options for those animals, you're, you're gonna you're gonna see them do those behaviors but you're gonna like you're gonna see them thrive more they're gonna be able to act more natural and you know some of people say oh is it necessary it may, it may not be necessary to keep them alive but just like a prison cell it's like a, a bed a toilet a sink and some food <laughs> you're gonna live but you're yeah, i mean you're not yeah. happy you're not a happy person in there you know it's like I could keep them on some paper. We could keep a hide box in there. You know, keep a water dish. But you know, if you give them, like when I when I'm going through there and I'm put, you know, just hedging back some of the plants and some of these natural setups and stuff, just the feel of those those organic plants on your skin is pleasant. You know, you're not like, ugh. You know, when you stick your hand in like a fake plant, it's like it's, it's you know, it's it doesn't feel good. It's like itchy and plasticky and shitty and you're like like this animal's curled up in a pile of trash you know it's just like all fake you know then you go back to like okay if you've got like basking bulbs and and stuff in there or radiated heat panels and all these fake plastic plants that john courtney smith talks about that in the uh in the uh, bioactivity book um you know about those things heating up and emitting chemicals and things that may not be so good for the animals that are in there so um, you know, for sure, the animals dig it more. Um, you're going to enjoy them more. I think like the animals only half of the presentation in a, in a captive setting, you know, it's like, you know, we've got some amazing, amazing animals here and you would not be able to like, like all those palm vipers, you would not be able to appreciate those snakes as much on like some newspaper yeah. and a twig or a PVC pipe perch. First, when you walk in there and they're curled up on a bromeliad, the lighting is adequate. You can see them. You can just look at them and go, man, that snake looks comfortable, you know? And well, whether it's a chondro or, you know, some monitor or other lizard, uh, you know, it's like a bronia. It's like you're, you're going you're gonna to see those animals behave a little bit differently with more natural options. And when we talk about, like, enrichment and stuff, you know, I'm not talking about just putting some like, you know, putting a, a, a ball in there for them to roll around or something. That just doesn't make sense for a lot of these animals. But enrichment can be natural 
enrichment. Like the people, people get into these different definitions of what enrichment actually is and is it for the animal or is it for the person, you know? And if you're just giving them everything, you know, minus like predation and stuff, but you could, you could look at yourself as that predator. Every time you have to handle that animal and pull it out of its cage, regardless of what people think about their snakes, they don't like you. And they're like, they at least are not like, they're, they're, they're not, it's not, the feeling's not mutual. You might love them, but they're, they might not bite you, but they're not, you know, it's like, I can't wait to be held and stuff. So every time you pick them up, I'm sure their stress levels go up because that, that, that's like a potential predation event right there. The Amazon tree boas love it when I pick them up. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it's like, where they almost get eaten but then they don't because that stuff happens and and uh and temperature swings that happens you know just providing this stuff to these animals is it, just going to make a, a a happier stress-free animal even with a little stress a little stress is okay you mm-hmm. want a little stress I, I want animals to feel a little stress sometimes because it makes them stronger like not unnecessary stress right. but if you leave, keep them in a completely stress-free environment and then you, uh, you know, start applying these changes, whether it's cycling or whatever. You know, these animals may drop dead because they were kept in these cushy little, you know, conditions this whole time, and they're not used to that stuff. Where in nature, it doesn't matter if they're a neonate or an adult. Life happens. It's going to be hot. It's going to be cold. They might not find food. A lot of them are going to die. You know, and uh, they they have to go through this stuff. And when you like. Some of the strongest snakes I've ever had, of course, are wild caught. They've been through some shit. <laughs> like, they're tough. And if they don't have some ill virus, they're, pro- they're, they're a tough animal. And, uh, you know, so I just think, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you could keep this stuff. But it definitely, I, I enjoy it more being able to look at them with natural plants and, and not everything has it, you know. Some of this stuff, we got some big mambas right now. Like we want to get them into big room-sized, you know, exhibits that, you know, uh, maybe outdoors. Because uh, as long as we follow, you know, the caging requirements for Florida, we could do that. Um, you know, or have like a greenhouse scenario where it's double-contained with outdoor mamba enclosures, where we have like trees and stuff where these things can go in. Because like. You can't just put like a pothos in with the, you know, some of these giant green mambas, like Western green mambas. It is going to destroy this stuff. You know, you need like real plants and trees they'd be hanging off of. So they're in more, you know, I'll, I'll cram some oak branches in there and stuff. And, you know, they'll be, the, 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 the leaves will be alive for a little bit or they'll be green and then they'll fall off and become a part of the substrate. Then I'll cram a new one. And, uh, so they, they get that feel, but it's not a functioning eco, you know, XC2 uh, ecosystem, but it works. It's not how I would totally like to do it. The animals do okay in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's a step up, of, you know, from just paper and a, and, a, and a hide box and stuff. But, you know, you could always be doing better, but... These animals can can do okay in a lot of different ways, so it just it's just up to you because not everybody wants to do a bioactive setup, and they don't necessarily need to have that to to thrive. Um, but you know, you may you know like those like uh, when Forrest brought up the uh, 
the, the animals from the alligator farm, the, the chondros that lived to be almost 30, those were animals that were in the zoo field for almost 30 years because that's when they start tracking those. They go off of a system called ZIMS, the Zoological Information Management System, and like all the major zoos are all like on that program and they share husbandry and breeding and, and medical information and stuff on these animals. So, you know, that's, you know, Zims and it shows the institutions that they were in before we got them. These things have been around forever, but guess what? Zeus tend to do it up with the exhibits, right? Like mm -hmm. natural exhibits and, and let these animals, and, and they also have rack systems and they have stuff in the back for extra holding because that's fine too. If you think those animals that, you know, were on display that whole time in these naturalistic setups, these are the ones that you see those longevity records, you know, that are, that are decades old. And, uh, you know, maybe there's something about that, like, you know, that, that, that helps that longevity. And I, I'm, I don't doubt it. Um, and, and, and oh. yeah, go ahead. You know, I was just, I, I was just down at uh, Fort Worth, you know, and, uh, got to, got to hang out with, uh, Ari Flagel and, uh, meet Vicky and stuff. Uh, and they had a, a big green tree exhibit and, uh, they're, you know, obviously misters, uh, power sun, mercury, UVB bulbs. And, uh, you know, the enclosure must've been 10, 12 feet high. And, uh, when I was there, I seen, uh, I seen the adult, this Biok, she was hanging up way on the canopy, uh, underneath that, uh, that power sun. And, and, uh, I know Ari told me just recently she had a, a very large fertile, fertile clutch. I think it was 17 or 18 eggs and wasn't a, wasn't an obese female or nothing. So, like Cody's saying, you know, keeping them in those, uh, it, that, that would be my dream, you know, is, is to be able to do something like that and, and see them do that. But there's mm -hmm. obviously something to that with those longevity records versus us keeping them in, in, you know, cubed enclosures with, uh, with very little ability to, to regulate yeah, I've their. I've grown to really their, hate cubes. I really don't yeah, like cubes. But there's one thing I hate more than, than cubes or, or cages in general is, is, uh, heat panels. They just scare the hell out of me. And, uh, I've, I've always called them chondro cookers. I think they're a, a terrible concept for, for an enclosure like that. I've always had, you know, felt like if I was going to do that, I would want to do it with a, a light bulb and, uh, and then dim that light bulb to the appropriate temperature or whatever. But, um, I mean, totally because you know, with the, with the light, it's like you know how hot that's gonna get, and yeah, you could put it on a dimmer and all that stuff too. But even if you didn't, you know, depending on where you put the perch and how big the enclosure is, you know, it's like, hey, it's 95 degrees, it's 85 degrees, whatever it is, that's how hot it's gonna get. Like the thermostat's not gonna go haywire and spike, or you know, probably like because I've used heat panels for a while and I've liked them for what I needed them for. And I, I haven't had um, I haven't had an issue with them, but uh, yeah, I could see where the issue could happen, and and where I really think it could happen is that probe that's in there with that heat panel for whatever reason isn't uh, secured properly and slides out of the the cage and falls out, and that it's you know let's say it's in a regular human room temperature you're in your low 70s maybe your 60s that probe is out there it's it's 
just to 100% power to that heat panel, trying to raise that 70 degrees to 80 degrees or whatever you have it set to. And then it just keeps heating up, heating up, heating up. That's 150 degrees. You get home from work or wherever and boom, dead chondro or worse, right? You know, a fire or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like I know, uh, pro products they make the legitimate heat panel um all the pro products bob pound from pro products who also makes preventamite which i'm a huge fan of it's not the same as a bedding spray or any of these other things i know a lot of ghetto herpers they're gonna say that they're gonna say oh do you use equate bedding spray i used it because i bought into it somebody that i thought you know knew more than me was like oh it's derp derp it's the same thing it's not the same thing bob pound makes his own stuff read the directions talk to him he's way smarter than me about this stuff and uh, they did studies with the bronx zoo on mites and everything they've legitimately done studies it's the only mite spray that's approved or to, to well other like reptile relief and stuff that's a different chemical makeup but you know like spraying the enclosure removing the animal water dish if you use as directed very effective stuff but Bob Pound makes those heat panels. They're good for they're, they're good for a heat panel. I have not had problems. But if uh, just so everybody knows, if you use anything but Provenamite, me and Cody think you're inbred and uh, <laughs> and just the stupidest person on earth because uh, it, it, it yeah, me and Cody both feel I, I've had several people work for me or that I've I've talked with and uh, they just have these these really unrealistic fears of uh, pro of Proventamite, and I'll make them actually call Bob and uh, <laughs> and, and talk to Bob because Bob's such a great guy to talk to. Both. But when you want to talk about the chemical makeups and, and all that stuff, he's uh, incredible. And with nidovirus and and all these different things that that can be going around, you know, mites are, are your worst enemy. And knowing how to once you know how to deal with them. Uh, effectively with Provenamide, it's so easy and it's something you can do quarterly for your whole club and uh, not have any worries, but I'll let Cody get back to the heat stuff. <laughs> oh, and I do that too. Like I definitely yeah. um, use Provenamide as, as, as the, as the name implies Provenamide, even when there's no mite infection going on or infestation um, every few months, I'll go like if we do a full substrate change. If it's let, let let me clarify, if it's not a bioactive setup, if it's a bioactive setup, we have isopods and springtails that are good microfauna. A little, you know, basically, I guess they're more related to crustaceans, the isopods, than anything else. But you don't want to use preventamide in with them because then you'll kill them, and they're good microfauna for the environment. So mm -hmm. if you do end up having it, that's why quarantine is so important in a basic setup before moving to something like that because if you put an animal with mites in that setup you basically either have to say bye to your 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 microfauna that are good the isopods and springtails or break the whole enclosure down you know in general but um yeah so you can't use it on that there's actually another which is a really cool thing and i've used these before on mites and it, like not not in my collection but in a uh, public facility that i worked at won't name which one, but it wasn't the alligator farm. And uh, we uh, we use these predatory mites, where they're they're mites that are good that eat mites, yeah, I've and heard then about when they're that. when yeah, when there's no mites to eat, then they they eat like oh you know, 
like any like uh, organic stuff that may grow on your substrate and whatever. So pretty cool. So in a, in a bioactive setup, if you were to get mites, those predatory mites, which there are companies uh, and, and people that, that specialize in breeding those, which ha- like really respect to those guys because that seems like a real tedious thing, breeding predatory mites, you know? Like I just feel like it's, <laughs> Probably not the easiest thing to do. Maybe it is for those guys, but that's super cool. Somebody's doing that, but that's what you would use in a bioactive setup. But other than that, you know, preventamite, that's where it's at, you know, and, um, and yeah, so it's definitely a very fresh. I don't know how many people that I always have to argue with about preventamite versus whatever, like over the counter spray that they get at walmart like equate bedding spray that they say it's the same thing as preventamite with a different label that is false bob pound makes his own stuff the per- the perethrin that's in the, the preventamite is not this it's, he was going over the differences between agricultural permethrin and another one again over my head talked to him about it whatever he did i trusted him because it made sense to me him knowing more about it than me and the fact that he did stuff with the brock zoo everything and in the fda oh yeah yeah and uh is it fda or the dsa or something i don't know but it's it's good just uh, just fda and uh yeah yeah fda epa he's had multiple agencies involved in uh are you looking at a can um no no but i just i literally talked to him uh last week about provenamite because um steven had some concerns about it with like spraying it on the sides of enclosures that we spray with water and stuff, he was worried about it dripping down in the animals drinking it. And so he didn't want to spray the sides of these enclosures. And so I was like, you know, I'm a smart ass a lot of times. So, you know, he doesn't know when to take me serious or not. And I'm like, look, we got to call Bob. I need you to understand what's dangerous and what's not dangerous about preventamite. And it's, is it once it's aerosolized and it's, it's been, you know, a couple of minutes at least for it to air out, they can drink at you could spray it in a water bowl, pour water in it, make a drink from that water bowl and be fine. Yep. Um so it's 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 pretty pretty incredible stuff. And you know, Bob Bob was telling me, you know, it's it's a good idea to spray it on paper towel and wipe it around the rim of like the vents and stuff on cages and because we were talking a lot about uh how I could practically use it within my insect feeder cages and stuff. But that's a whole nother you know, so so far we went off on long r- rants about mites uh bioactive and naturalistic setups and all these poor people just wanted to hear about congress <laughs> uh, but, but you know this 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 all uh, this all ties into it though right yeah, like, yeah. you know it's it, it's that this is what they want they want to hear and it's epa epa i'm looking at a camera fda so like Unless, unless Bob told you, yeah, it wouldn't be FDA. Yeah, you're right. It's it was probably more EPA, CDC stuff. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it all ties in together. We we like, I mean, the interview is not over, so we could talk like individual stuff, chondro genetics or whatever, you know, or stuff that we've we've worked with, and uh, you know, but I but I feel like all this other stuff kind of ties into it because you know you hear the same old like we Forrest and i listen to pretty much every podcast of everything that comes out we we hear what people say and you know it's it, it's a lot of redundant stuff and 
you know, not a lot of people are, are talking about lots of their failures and things like that. And I think that's really super important because, like, I don't ever want to hear like, – like, yeah, I like to hear about the successes and stuff of people. But I also want to – like, I want you to be open and honest and tell me what's going wrong, you know, like with, with us and the Nida virus. And, and we were very trans – make sure people knew before somebody started gossiping and saying, oh, these guys have an infected collection. It's like we want to own it. We want to know that – we want people to know that we're, yeah, we've got a virus or we had a virus, but we're, we managed it correctly versus people that have these things that never need crops, either animals, they don't, they don't viral test, they don't do this stuff and they don't know, you know, like it doesn't mean you don't have it when people say, Oh, I got a respiratory infection. Oh, it's probably fucking night of virus. And, uh, you, you, you know, there's other things it could be, but until you, you test them and swab them and figure it out, you don't know. Die, and we send it for necropsy you know the necropsy result comes back and it's always something that i wasn't expecting or mm-hmm. like but until you have all those tests ran you know a snake dies a snake dies you know it only dies in so many fashions like you could pretend you think you know but i, I tell you you know have those guys do their side of the the job and the work you know your veterinarians and pathologists and stuff like you don't know. And, you know, I've had animals die and I get the knee crops, uh, the knee crops report back. And it's like, Oh, this animal had, uh, you know, a pro like something happened inside its body's uh, organ or this, that, and the other, it was not infectious. It make it, it puts that to rest. It makes me feel better. Like, okay, it's like, we're good. Like, I mean, that sucks that that animal died, but at least I know why it died instead of just throwing it in the trash regardless of what species it is and, and then just thinking I, I i know you know it's like i want to know and sometimes we get stuff back and it's like we don't know but it's okay well it wasn't this that and the other so i'm happy for that it died from something but you know like it, it's just just have to uh you know I, li- I like hearing that stuff and i wish more people would would just I, I think more people are starting to own it you know like people are like people want to test people want you know people act you know with, especially with these really high-end collections people want to know and yeah if you're people, gonna be spending that much money on an animal i mean it it's kind of a no-brainer. And, and here's the thing. It's like you ask for somebody to test their animal or whatever they're selling, and, and they give you some grief about it. I would I'd be really cautious around it because I'll tell you, if anybody ever asks us to test anything for any disease, uh, you're never going to offend me when you ask that. I actually will respect you more if you do, and uh, and, and we definitely do that with animals uh that are going out and it depends on the animal and, and, and what ailments that they have and, you know, status. Like if it was produced by us from clean animals that we knew were clean and the, and the, and the animal, you know, it's like, but we, we make sure that, uh, that we do that stuff and we have our pulse on the, uh, the collection on all that stuff. And, um, you know, it's it's really not that much harder to do that. You know, and it like I, I just wouldn't get, I just don't get offended. Like nobody's ever asked us to do that stuff because we always do it. Like whenever we send animals out, we test them for, you know, similar to zoos and stuff. So, you know, before a zoo sends uh, an animal to another zoo, they will have a round of vet uh, work done, blood work, and and all that stuff, and test for known viruses of the animals. 
before it goes to the news zoo, the other the news recipient will uh, put them into quarantine still, run all those tests, and, and put it through the quarantine process. And then if they clear it on that end, then they go into the main collection. And uh, so we just function in that manner. You know, if we're sending stuff out, we'll test it. And our animals are generally more expensive than other people's, depending on what it is, uh, because that the cost of what we do is wrapped up into that stuff, you know, disease testing and all of that. We want, we want to make sure people are getting a clean animal from us. Now, I can't help you on how you do your stuff if you don't quarantine and you throw all these animals together in the same room. Like, that's one thing, but if it's coming from our, our place, it's gonna we're we're gonna make sure you're getting a clean animal from us, and uh, you know at least going off of the testing and our observations of the animals' behaviors and what they look like and everything's normal and stuff like that. But um, more people are starting to pick up steam with that, and that's great. You know, I think you you know you should be um, asking those questions to sellers and if they if they can't answer them or they they get uncomfortable when you ask them to test and they say oh i've never had a problem and i you know i don't you know whatever and you say hey well, can you get get that animal tested for nidovirus or paramyxin i'm going to bring it into the collection and i'll film it and i'll show you it's away from everything else and i'm going to test it and blah 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 and if it comes back with one of these known viruses we better have an exit clause you take the animal back, refund the money, or even send other animals back just because some animal might be infected with these uh, virus doesn't mean the whole collection is, um, you know. But that that's up to the individual person and, uh, you know, and what they do. But, uh, you know, I, I just think if, if anybody starts acting uncomfortable when you ask those questions, I would, I would uh, be more... Uh, you know, conscientious of where I, 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 I buy animals from. And I, and I have definitely gone against my better judgment against getting animals and thinking that they were going to be good animals on more than one occasion. Unfortunately, when you, when you think, Oh, this, like I know this person and me, blah, blah, blah. You know how the story goes and you get those animals mm-hmm. and they're, they're high end animals. And you think like they were quarantined and done all this stuff and you may, make your quarantine assessment and, and, you know, flag them through because, you know, you trust that person or whatever. And, and those are the animals that have it. You can ruin decades worth of acquisitions and animals by bringing in the wrong infected snakes and it could destroy your whole collection. It's very serious. It's scary. Like, and if you're not terrified, there's a problem. You're just, you're ignorant to, to, to the fact. Like yeah, there needs to be a degree of paranoia to, to, it, has to be, yeah. it should be extreme paranoia. And I mean, Cody, you know, Cody's talking about viruses and, and this testing and that's, that's the easy part that nobody does. So nobody tests for, you know, you can ask all the questions you want. Um, if they're trying to sell you something there, if they're a good salesperson, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. And it's a, it's of your responsibility a hundred percent when you're bringing in an animal to quarantine that animal correctly. And none of us do that because all of us want too many animals on a regular basis to be able to mm-hmm. zoos are going to go at least six to nine months and they're cryptosporidium cryptosporidium. It's going to take them at least that long to determine if an animal has that or not. That animal, they could they could do 
it can literally survive through, you know, three gastric washes and multiple fecals and they finally will. So they've learned over time that's, that's what it actually takes. So Mm -hmm. if you have one animal and then you bring in a second animal, there's no magical good breeder out there who's doing this stuff right. Assume it's going to be your last before your collection's wiped out. And it doesn't matter, you know, if it doesn't matter if they're a good guy or you're playing God with these animals in captivity and your chance for failure is extremely high. So when you're sitting there being a calculator cowboy saying, if I breed this to this and I'm going to make this much money off it, no, it's all going to go to hell probably halfway through because you're going to bring this in from this guy and it's going to go a bit, but, but at least do everything, you know, that with the virus stuff, with the Congo stuff, it's so positive now, like, you know, with Cody and Pia and everything they went through the stuff they figured out. And now what's available with, with fish head, with the testing, it's like, I've got a local guy who, who gets rodents from me. His name's, uh, his name, I, I won't, uh, he's, he's a newer keeper and he started out in the game testing every snake for, from fish head. And now he has like, I think eight chondros and he just got his first clutch of all red neos. And, uh, and I'm just so stoked to see that. Like that guy got such a better head start being able to get virus free animals mm-hmm. and Definitely. do that. And it's, 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 that's the positive side of it. You know, that's, that's the positive side. that's hard to get out of me, but, um, the, the negative reality is, is you know when you want to look at this as a said this and i asked it's like it's all bullshit it's like you know if you're you know say you're a a, bre- a breeder and then you bring things in from the wild too like cryptosporidium can live for years in a tub in your backyard and these facilities that handle tons of tons of animals like they're putting animals through tubs all the time and mm-hmm. an import uh python or tree boa or this you know just insert animal here the chance of it having something you know you know having cryptosporidium or or you know having a virus it's it's very very high and uh unfortunately like we found out with uh with green trees people just specializing in one species that have super nice setups and put literally six figure amount of money into animals don't assume that uh they're they're uh you know, doing quarantine or I don't know. I kind of went off on a rant there. Sorry, Cody. <laughs> no, 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 I love it. I, I'm, I'm always happy when someone else is ranting. That's not me. <laughs> I just, I just hate the whole, just people's opinion of how things should go when they buy an animal. Like they think that they're buying say a fancy car with a warranty and that since they bought this brand that uh, it's, it's, and you're, it's it's on you and the seller knows there's something wrong and they sell it to you then they're you know they're a piece of shit because they're they're knowingly they are i mean they're knowingly murdering other animals for them to get the thing out of their place so i'd say that's basically the lowest form of what you can be um but you know the the reality is 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 uh and that's i that's where the, the selling reptiles side of things is really hard for me. Cause it's like, man, it's, it's, you, you know, one way or another, like 
you know, I, with social media, I had so many people coming at me wanting green trees that I was like, damn, I'm going to just buy, buy some, uh, some Bushmaster babies and sell them. And, uh, and I, I had like 10 neonates that were just the most solid site feeder. And out of those 10 that I sold to people, five of them came back and they're like, feed i don't know what to do and it's like you can talk to them until you're blue in the face and you know a week later they're trying to force feed it because it won't eat in this giant glass tank with perches as thick as your leg and yep. i i mean the things i've seen are ridiculous that people will do so it's like the, just the business side of it makes you want to pull your hair out mm-hmm. but there's uh there's there's positives and negatives to it i don't really know um, I love that, dude. Like, like every interview that I've ever been on on any podcast, talked about again. Like, yeah, what's the point of all this? Like, I forgot what I was talking about. I do that um, all the time. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. You know, every everybody, yeah. you know, like everybody preaches quarantine and all that stuff, and, and 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 like certain husbandry, and then you go to their place, and it's just a bunch of like dry, you know. Uh, cypress and like empty water bowls and animals <laughs> with stuck shed. Yeah, flakes and, of of snake skin all over the cage. And I do. I I've gone to people's places that I thought I respected before just because of like social media or what what like their what their claim to fame was. And you go there and you're just like, man, like how do you like? Oh, you say, oh, you got to keep them like this and you got to keep them like that or they won't breed or whatever. And you look at them and you're like, man, these things are kept like shit. Like, are you like? are you kidding me? Uh, you know, and it's like everybody, you know, you see all these people online and they'll talk about quarantine and uh, everybody's a nidovirus expert now. Like I, I talk, like I let Pia and Susan deal with all that stuff from fish head. Like, I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll talk about our story but that I don't give advice on it other than our experience. Legally, I can't do that because mm-hmm. I'm not a veterinarian or right. whatever. But, like, uh, you, you know, it's it, – I, I just I, – Pia is known for that now, and, and she, she handles that very well. Um, but, like, it, people just don't – you know, like, they, they'll, they'll say one thing, and then they just don't do it. And uh, it is very frustrating. Because it's yeah. hard to do. It's hard to, to practice what you preach. You know, even I've been to plenty of zoos where I'm like, you, you know, they're they're obviously, ta- you know, not taking because to to completely prevent bad things from happening, you have to, for one, be just extremely vigilant and almost psychotic about about your procedures. Um, you certainly can't let any outsiders in. And then, um, where else was I going with that? I, damn it. I, I lost where I was going. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's, it's extremely hard. Well, where I was going with it was, it's also really difficult from an infrastructure perspective, you know, and it shouldn't be because instead of going and buying $50,000 worth of snakes, if you go and you buy, a $10,000 shed in your backyard or even two $10,000. You've got electrical and window units and, and a sink and, and all these different things. If you spend that 20,000 on those two sheds and, 
and then go spend the other 30,000 on the snakes and you have this multi-stage quarantine and an isolation area for, for stuff, you know, for animals that are having issues. If you do that, you're going to be massively successful, but nobody wants to spend that money on that upfront infrastructure. It's, it's difficult to do because it's a lot more fun to go to FedEx or, or Delta and, and unbox that amazing new animal and take a picture of it and post it up and everything else. But, um, and infrastructure and then got to have the, the discipline. Um, that's, what's gonna, gonna get you success and not, not lead you into, uh, so many of the nightmares that me and Co- Cody yeah, and I have. No uh, one wants to be the guy that was responsible for massive collection die-offs because they didn't no. want to take the, take the time to that, handle it themselves. Every, everybody rack a discipline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> gotta have the discipline. Gotta discipline. Gotta have discipline. No, 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 like, no, seriously. But, uh, yeah, no, moving forward from this, like, when we, when we get our new property and stuff, we're gonna have a multi-stage quarantine isolation. Like, you know, like, and, and you don't really realize that or, or think about it and get, get to that point until you're at that level is serious, you know, like some of the hobbyists are not going to get to that level, you know, having a few animals, you know, they're not, they're not aspiring to be the next big breeder. They're not going past that or whatever. So they're, you know, like just by testing animals that come in and, and and being very upfront about, uh, uh, you know, like I I think it's on the buyer's behalf. They've got to, they've got to be educated to be able to ask the sellers, Hey, I know about these ailments like chondros for this case um, or carpets or any of them that are susceptible to NIDA virus, you know, like let those sellers know that you're aware of it. Maybe some of those sellers don't know and say, Hey, you know, if if you're really that sure yourself, put your money where your mouth is. um, I want to test that animal. I would say you got to have an area to put that animal, have that sent to you. And then, um, and then test it through fish head diagnostics. Those, uh, you know, those at home nidovirus testing kits come with very basic instructions for even the most novice person to follow and, and test and say, Hey, I'm going to test this thing. If it comes back positive, you know, like you got to let them know ahead of time. Like if this happens, you refund my money and I send the animal back or whatever the case is mm-hmm. you, that that person's got to talk about that up front. And, um, man, that, now I'm like forest. I totally forgot where I was going with that, but <laughs> like, you know, it's oh, multi-stage quarantine and people just not like when you're serious about this stuff, you know, and you get to that level, you could have a couple buildings. If you have a big collection and you're, like currently our collection is worth more than our, our five acre property. Like we have huge equity in our animals. Like, so it's a big deal and we're not where we need to be right now with, uh, you know, those multi-stage quarantines and isolation buildings. So, you know, like currently like our friends from Bushville reptiles, Warren and Nicole Klein, they just sent us, um, uh, all their venomous stuff. And like I said, I mentioned earlier, Cape coral snakes, Cape cobras, puff adders, black spitting cobras, the Niawood eye, very rare, a lot of cool stuff. And those animals currently are being quarantined. 50s, uh, we got inland, inland taipans from 
uh, our buddy Joe Satowski, our inland taipan and, and, and coastal taipan and New Guinea taipans in our bathroom. Like in our master bathroom, we have currently 56 animals <laughs> that are in isolation quarantine because these are the newest animals place that we could keep them away from our stuff we uh we just got a emerald um palm viper or march's palm viper the both react march eye from Owski. he's a good friend of ours he's down in fort myers like we just go down there a few hour road trip and hang out but just got this animal from him that came from Ketzel dryer at, at reptilandia in costa rica and uh, this is a montane species. So we have a window unit in our room right now to keep it in the 60s, uh, while this animal is the only one in here in quarantine. And apparently our quarantine is just like, okay, those animals that require hotter temperatures, you know, the, the main AC is set to 82 during the day. So like that room gets plenty hot for those animals. Uh, they don't have any supplemental heat right now. Well, some of them do. Not all of them, so we're doing the ambient room temperature stuff for the species. We're also testing these animals for things like paramyxovirus, uh, which is a, a well-known uh, virus, and things like viper snakes. Other things can get it too, but you know we're like now. But when we but when we move to Orlando and open our public facility we're going to have that multi-stage quarantine where when we acquire new animals, it's going to be a couple at a time from the same person or just a couple people. They all go into that quarantine building. They get tested for the known viruses that, that affect those species before they get to go into the main collection. And it could be a three month quarantine to nine uh, to six months to longer, depending on what you're looking for. And, uh, if you're going to be serious about it, that, that's basic. That's the basic mm -hmm. setup. You know, if you've got, like, we've got hundreds of animals and we struggle to best that we can. And, and where we really shine is that we actually test for the, the viruses so we know. It's not just a quarantine where we're guessing. We'll isolate them, but we'll test them. We identify whether they have it or not. Some of them end up coming up positive with these viruses. You know, and it's just a part of what happens. And it's more common than you think. Like, if you're serious about this, or even if you're just getting into it, we just met a couple, uh, a person that uh, is just getting into green tree pythons and uh, only had three animals. He's, he's in Orlando and contacted us and said that this uh, green tree python tested positive for nidovirus. The other ones were negative. He just got into it. He only has three chondros. He's already kind of distraught, right? He's only got three animals and one is positive. And, uh, you know, he, but he said was asymptomatic and acting natural and normal and whatever. And, but he, you know, wanted that animal out of the collection for obvious reasons. He lived in a home. He couldn't only, he could only do a certain amount of quarantine or isolation. We have a building that's away from the main area for these nido positive animals and he asked if we could take it and, and we agreed we took this female she's a ready to breed female um you know and it's not something that we're just like oh yeah send us all your diseased chondros or whatever like i don't want something that's wheezing or dying and actively dying that this animal is otherwise fine but i only have this many chondros so we said we already have this building so go ahead and bring it to us 
and uh you know and we really hit it off the guy is a great guy and doing the right stuff so you want to like support that like hey you're doing you know we've got an area for these things we'll take it beautiful animal um and her name is zella and she's awesome she's like no no real locale data or anything like that but a beautiful snake and uh you know she could possibly breed with morpheus and we told we told uh, this person like hey listen if we happen to produce and we get some negative babies I'll definitely throw one your way because this basically surrendered this animal to us. Uh, but I, it's like if I breed it, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, like basically we created those babies out of thin air, so I feel like that would be a cool thing to do. But you know, it's it's cool to see people that are just starting out, like Forrest was talking about with his person that are testing these animals, and uh, again, like it's not like. We're, we're asking for infected animals but like it would be on a case-by-case basis and people that we know and stuff that we could help out if we could help out because we do have the means for that that building but moving forward it needs to be more intense than that it needs to be a multi-level thing you know and you have to have an area for animals that have already tested clean if something goes wrong where they start acting like they've got something they need to be immediately pulled from your main collection and isolated away from any animals that are, are new acquisitions in that quarantine area. You know, they got to be by themselves. So it can be very If you have the property or even if you just have a backyard, a couple sheds with independent window units could be enough to, to manage it really effectively and better than you know most people are ever going to do. Because people might say that they do this shit, but they may never do it. You know, so they ask me, so you got to ask for some proof sometimes. Everybody's got an iPhone. Send me some video of your setup. We'll do it. We'll send it. If somebody was that concerned about it, we're not worried about it. So, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put their worries to rest. And, uh, but it's it's tough and, and like Forrest and I talk about all the time, it's like you gotta know so much to do this. Like, you know, with construction skills, viral, you know, stuff, you gotta at least be somewhat knowledgeable in it. Even if you're not a veterinarian, you gotta research that literature. You gotta understand what, what can kill these animals. It's not just like, Oh, check out that wicked bloodline. Oh my god, I gotta have it and then post it up on Instagram and Facebook and like, check me out. You know, you gotta, you gotta test these animals and see what, what, what you have and like, you know, take it seriously because you know, these animals can die from these viruses. Like it's, it's serious. Then, you know, I don't always mean to get on this high horse. A lot of these podcasts we've been on, you know, it turns into this talk, but you know, I'm so tired of just, Oh, like, Oh yeah, this is my, this is my breeding recipe. And this is how I do it. And like, Hey, our chondros actually mean, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear that shit anymore. Like, tell me what I need to hear, you know, like, like, tell me what I don't want to hear. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I don't want to hear because that's what I need to know. And not enough people are being upfront about that kind of stuff. And it pisses me off, you know, because like we do, like we do things the best we possibly can. And I like, it is bullshit that I get some of these rare expensive as fuck animals for thousands of dollars. We go through the quarantine process, we test them and they're infected with one of these viruses. Now this has happened more than once. 
with nidovirus. It's happened to us with paramyxovirus, which is just one of the worst viruses that could ever go through with vipers and other things can get it as well. But it's a particular, vipers are particularly sensitive to this. Then we do have a lot of vipers that represented in our collection. And, you know, it's like we quarantine them. The other rooms, different, we, you know, we have box fans with uh, air filters on them, high-grade air filters that are supposed to cycle out viruses or most viruses or whatever. And, uh, you know, we do what we're able to do. And it's bullshit that we're getting this stuff from people that are supposed to be well-respected and, and knowledgeable in the field. And they're not, they're, you know, they talk about, oh, I keep everything clean and I never have any problems. But they don't necropsy. They don't disease test. They don't do that stuff, you know. And then, and then, like, you know, after spending, you know, decades of acquiring these animals and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these on these animals to bring in something, and you think it's going to be healthy, and it's not. It's unacceptable, you know. And people need to know that shit because that's the real life of herpetoculture. If you're working with animals that have exotic diseases, and as much as you think you know about them. You don't know shit because I like I've been doing this my entire life. I've been in the professional zoo world, gone into the private breeding thing, and are, and we're about to uh, you know erect our own uh, open to the public uh, reptile like facility, zoo, institution, whatever you want to call it, the Reptile Preservation Institute, and like. I still feel like I don't know shit, you know? I'm constantly asking other people that I, I, I think are smarter than I am about stuff. I have some of the top veterinarians and virologists that are like literal friends of mine. And like I have a, a tremendous amount of resources and I feel like I don't know shit every day. As much as I know, I feel like I don't know anything. And you know, and I feel like that's the approach you have to take because if you don't, you're in trouble. If you think that you know what you know and you got it figured out, go do something else. Because every year I'm facing a new challenge and a new problem, and and that will be what makes you successful in this. If you want to go like all the way through whatever it is, open to the public institution, a reptile breeder, or whatever. If you if you if you give up the fact that you you think if you think you know. You're, you're in a bad spot, you know. You, you constantly have to be questioning people. Even the smartest people I know, they'll give me, like, an answer or give me some information, and I still question it. Because sometimes the most respect, I don't know if you're right about that, you know, and, and, and they may not be, and we can talk about it. But, like, you got to take it seriously. These animals, even, you know, the locale stuff and the farm bread stuff, it still commands a really high price tag. Take it seriously. Hundreds of dollars is a lot of money, you know, up to thousands or more, you know. It, 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 it's, uh, it's serious, you know. And, and, and if it, it's so serious. And it's not just about like, oh, I got this cool new thing and just put it in there because it looks healthy. You know, like we, we just took in some palm vipers, both Riecus lateralis, the side-striped palm pit looked healthy in the beginning of a male looked off from the beginning to me but you know they just got there who knows you know they're just acclimating and uh, the male just looked off and of course i'm mr pessimistic you know sometimes you're you know those guys are valuable i always love forrest because you know he's very positive but he'll also be pretty you know pessimistic too and if i if i ever want to 
if I, if I ever want a real answer, you know, if everybody else is patting me on the back and telling me all the things I want to hear, I know Forrest is going to tell me what I don't want to hear. And that's what I want to hear. That's the stuff yeah. that I want to hear that, you know, like, because he's going to see, he's going to look at it and go, I don't think, you know, like, you know, and he'll tell me why. And, you know, sometimes I'll agree and I'll adopt that. And sometimes I don't, I'll take my stand if I think mine is, is the right one or whatever, but you know, I'm, I'm willing to hear the other side you know, but like, yeah, like I get these things and I, I see this male and, you know, he's not looking hot. He's acting a little weird, stargazing and I, not eating and whatever. And, uh, you know, do our best to keep him in the game. He's in quarantine. Um, you know, the, he dies. We immediately send him off for necropsy. He's a viper. High end, at least in, in the U S viper. And, uh, of course, I'm going, it's Paramixo, it's Paramixo. And, uh, you know, Pietro, she tries to keep me on track. And she'll say, like, look for horses, not zebras. Like, try to look for the most basic thing first. And I always go to the worst thing. Like, I'm always like, yeah, it's uh, Armageddon, you know. And uh, I said, it's totally Paramixo. This animal has Paramixo virus. And, oh, I mean, it's not Paramixo, whatever, you know. And, uh uh, and it dies, and we submit it, and of course it's it's paramyxa virus. So it's like, oh god, okay, now we got to isolate the female, and uh, we tested her. She started coming. She was down with with symptoms of the virus, and we we tested her and sent that out, and of course she had paramyxa virus too. And uh, you know, these are animals that you just wouldn't think would have it coming in, you know, especially coming from somebody that you thought it was going to be. Uh, you know, totally fine and whatever. And it's like, you just, nothing personal. You have to treat it just like a zoo. It doesn't matter if the zoo tested it before it got there. The, the recipient zoo is going to test it again, put it through another 90-day quarantine or six-month quarantine. Then they're going to do the same round of tests. And if it, you know, passes those, then it could be, admit, you know, admitted into the you know, main collection or moved to the main collection. And that's how people need to look at this because if they don't, you're gonna you're gonna have problems. If you have any sort of collection or you're striving to be a breeder, I you know I don't want to. I never try to sound totally full of myself, but you will 100% you know get one of these viruses if you just bring animals in and you don't actually test them. If you have a, a 50 animals, 100 animals, or whatever, that as the number increases so does your chances of getting one of these things, whether it's cryptosporidium and colubrids and other things, uh, different lizards, uh, uh, you know, uh, paramyxo and vipers, uh, uh, lapids, colubrids, possibly boids and stuff like that. I think there is documented cases of that, but don't quote me on it. Um, you know, this, this shit is real, and it's not all sunshine and rainbows and, and just like, oh, let's get these animals and breed them and just, like, celebrate on Facebook and everybody give you thumbs up and pat on the back and all that shit. It's like, you know, to me, it, these animals aren't worth anything or even worth your time unless you know the health status of them, and people should be getting veterinary checkups and shit on these animals before they exit their collection to send to people. You know, it's like, hey, would you have to pay a little bit more on an animal that had, like, that certification, health, and disease <clears throat> testing? Yeah. Yeah, you would. But wouldn't you want to? Don't you think that's a necessary cost, especially if you already have a collection that's worth, 
X amount of dollars. You know, what's, what's, a, what's a few hundred dollars more, a couple hundred dollars more, if you're serious. If you're not, well, you know, maybe you're going to lose all of your shit one day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, then, and then once that happens, that's when you're going to realize how serious it is. You know, after the, Absolutely. you know, Nido, Nido and then Paramixo, it's like now, man, what, like once we move and are able to develop the facility, that it's like, you know, even then it might not stop everything from getting through, greatly reduce those variables. And, you know, it like, I'm, you know, people like will say, oh man, like you have some pretty bad luck and stuff. And I, I honestly think, I look at it as, I wouldn't say good luck, but I'm very appreciative because the fact that we've tested and we've done this stuff, I realize that this stuff is around, right? Like it just doesn't happen sometimes. It's out there and you don't know what you, reptiles are very good at hiding disease. And, you know, don't try don't, a bottle of Batril or Amicacin or Septazidine, AKA Fortaz, you know, that that is not reptile medicine. They tell you what needs to happen next. You don't know. So don't act like, you know, pull your head out of your ass. Like just, you know, I mean, test the animals, take it seriously. If you are a serious person and have a collection, why wouldn't you? Um, You know, but again, you know, it's, oh, I don't need to do that until it happens. You know, for us, we we already practiced good husbandry and quarantine and stuff. And we, we've had it happen to us that we've had two viruses get to the main gates because of, of that. And, and we'll say it, right? Because I'll own it. I want to own mm-hmm. it because I'm going to get better from here about screening for this stuff and making sure I prevent it from getting into the collection again. So I'm happy that it's happened because I, I learned a lot from it. It wasn't, didn't really feel good going through it. I like to reference it like working out, you know, working out never really feels good when you're doing it, but the results, you know, are rewarding. You know, when you're walking around mm-hmm. with that six pack, you're probably pretty happy, right? But getting that six pack probably it wasn't sucked. easy. Yeah. Not easy. Yeah. You, you had to sacrifice some stuff, you know? And, right. uh, right now I'm, I'm trying to sacrifice IPAs. It's pretty hard, <laughs> but you know, but like, you know, it's it's serious. Like, and we we both Forrest and I have experienced all of this stuff across across the board. You know, and it's like, like you just it just makes you realize, like, you know, and that, and that's why you know, like, I don't try to, I don't mean to try to sound negative and stuff and and pessimistic like I, I was in the beginning about stuff. You know, just saying how you just have this anxiety and this stress. It's like when we bring in new animals, I'm stressed out. I don't know what's coming in. You know, it's like I hope they're healthy, but I've heard that shit too many times. I've heard it too many times. Oh, it's totally healthy. And when things start rolling on me, the people I get them from, the immediate thing, they all say, oh, well, it was fine when it left, right? Like, I never say that shit because that never happens. Like, I had a couple rhino vipers that started getting all wheezy and problematic on a customer that just bought them. I sent them a video and I said, these things are wheezing. They don't look good. I don't feel comfortable selling them to you. I'll either send you your money back or I have a pair of my own personal holdback sub-adult rhino vipers that I will sell you. Like, I, of course, they have to pay the price difference because they were bigger and 
worth more. But it's like, here, you could pay me a little bit more and I'll send you my, 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 my reserve stock or I'll just refund your money. Guy appreciated my honesty and, of course, took the adult rhino and some adults that I didn't want. I, I rather gave him his money back than get more and sell those. But I wanted to make him happy and, and, and also show, like, hey, like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to earn, not only earn your business, but your respect and admiration. And he's like, man, not a lot of people would ever say that, you know, because I could have sent those rhinos and said, oh, happened in transit, made up whatever BS excuse that I wanted to make. But I didn't. You know, it's really not hard to not be a piece of shit in this industry. But there's a lot Absolutely. of shit. It's not hard. It's so not hard for us with the rodents. You know, if, the, if there's a mistake on the counter or whatever. And it's like, it's tough, man. Like, I, we do rodents on, you know, to, to feed our own <clears throat> stuff and then just sell a little extra to, to fund some stuff to fund the business. But like, you know, when I'm counting stuff, I like, I'm like halfway through whatever the number is. And I'm like, Oh shit. I totally forgot where I was. And I have to recount them. So there's like a, a coin star for rodents, which I think would be a great thing for somebody to work on when you, when you can just dump them in there and it just counts them as they go into the bags. That would be sweet. But like mistakes happen. And for us, he, he always, He'll send boxes of rodents for free to people to do that, to, 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 to earn the respect in the business. And it's like, you know, he's losing money doing that, but he's doing the right thing, you know? And, and, and that person, like, oh, well, I hope that people suck now, but like, I hope that person like, you know, admires that. When I was at my other facility, the, the Phoenix Herpetological Society, Forrest was sending us rodents in a couple bags. The person, the person that was, you know, in charge there, the owner, I want, or the the president, I won't name the name, you know, but uh, you know, it's just like that. I got to count every rodent in the bag, and it, like out of a count of fifty, there was like forty-eight or forty-nine, and he was all upset about it. And Forrest was like, "All right, I'll just send you another couple boxes," and did. And, and that person still is because I just wanted to get it right the first time, you know. I'm like, <laughs> he, 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 just, he just sent you like another, shut up, right? Like, you know, be, be grateful. But, you know, it's really the, like even if it costs you a little extra money, one, it'll make you sleep better at night. But it, like that person, oh, man, they're going to tell people. They're going to mm-hmm. say this person did it right, you know. They did me right, whatever. And, uh, you know, like, it's like if you if you label yourself as somebody who, uh, you know, like doesn't make it right or do anything after that, like that word spreads really quickly and then nobody's going to do something super simple like that, you know, even if it costs you a little money. It's probably not because in the long run, those people are going to tell more people, they're going to send more business your way, and they themselves – will be repeat customers instead of taking their business somewhere else. So, Boom. Uh, we're yeah, coming up on 3 like, hours, so let's cl- we need to we need to close out with something like that. <laughs> All right, well, I got, you know, um, you know, thank th- definitely thanks for having me on and I know we we've touched on a lot of a lot of things that might sound negative or or went on and on about stuff, but bottom line is we're we're all part of something really awesome and and through all these bad experiences and the ups and the downs, 
we're doing this for a reason and it's an amazing experience keeping this stuff in captivity and i hope some of the people listening will go on to to produce you know some amazing chondros and and there's more positives than there are negatives and we're getting better and better at doing this all the time and and there's definitely a good purpose for having these animals in captivity um both to learn more about them teach other people about them and and by taking it more and more serious and trying to advance our our husbandry and our knowledge base of things, um, it's 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 all heading in a really positive direction. And and uh, so just just uh, stay stay positive and uh, definitely hope to uh, hope to challenge. And for anybody who is living under a rock and not following you already, where can they find you, Forrest? Um, they can find me on Instagram at Zoo Dreams, Facebook Forrest Fanning. Um, and then my rodent website is uh, Cold Blooded Cafe, Cafe, shameless plug, uh, $30 fly rate shipping anywhere in the USA. Can't be beat. <laughs> Heck <Yep>. yeah. <laughs> and Cody, where can they find you? Um, I am on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and have a website. So Cody Bartolini, you can find me. That's my uh, personal Facebook, Terrestrial and Arboreal is our business page. We also just put up the uh, Instagram page for the Reptile Preservation Institute, the facility that we're going to be building um, somewhere in the Orlando area. We're still looking for the property. We're thinking Claremont in uh, Florida. Um, but uh, so the Reptile Preservation Institute on Facebook, follow that. Um, the Facebook stuff will probably be soon to follow. And then the terrestrial and arboreal.com uh, where I need to update some stuff currently, but uh, but on there Fish as head well. Lab. Yes, Fish head Fish Labs. Head. Thank, thank, thank you for us, for sure. Fish yep. Head uh, Diagnostics, Fish Head Labs. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, and the website. Uh, so if you have chondros or any other, other Morelia or pythons, uh, pre, pre-quarantine, post-quarantine, or something that you think might have an active um, you know, problem, uh, you can get the fish head diagnostics, cytovirus test. They are also offering the paramyxo test for anybody who may also keep venomous species mm-hmm. or things that are susceptible to uh, to paramyxo virus. But uh, but yeah, no, three hours went went fast like it always does. But uh, <laughs> it evaporates. Yeah, I'm happy for us decided to come on. I thought yeah, that man. there would be a lot. It would be a lot better back and forth with both of us on there than just me and it definitely was and and we got to touch on some stuff but there's just so much more like we mm-hmm. said before like between the two of us uh we we've had some of the most exceptional chondros come through our hands and uh been uh, able to work with a lot of great people so i think around for sure would be a, a fun thing and um and yeah so you you know where to find us and uh it's been a blast yeah man so let us know when you want to do a five-hour podcast on mexican and uh central american herpetofauna yeah and we'll uh <laughs> yep well, <laughs> we'll, right, be, we'll be on the uh the herpetoculture podcast for that one then we'll jump yeah. Yeah. there for uh for the yeah. other stuff Cody's but, uh, like my go-to. He's he's what I've I've dubbed my designated hitter. Like if I need someone short notice yep. and I want to do a venomous episode, <laughs> sure. I just call Cody because I'm like I can fill an hour and a half plus in no time with him, and it's easy to do. Yep, that's I I, I get through a lot of my days here in these ranks. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. I'll talk right, to you guys, guys. later.
Thank you. Cool. Awesome. See you guys. Later. Ciao. All right, guys. So, if you've made it this far, congratulations. I was originally really going to try and keep this to like two hours and under. Obviously, that didn't happen, but there's a lot of information in Cody's brain. Um, so, this is the end of it. Uh, please follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the Conjurecast and at Palmetto Coast Exotics. Um, big, huge thanks to my official sponsor now for TCC, which is David Brahms at Specialty Enclosure Designs. Uh, please go check his out, check out his Facebook and his Instagram, and also on his website, he has all his products available. Um, I'll be doing some more video reviews of some of his stuff here coming up soon. And other than that, thank you to Forrest and Cody for coming on again. Well, Cody coming on again. Thanks, Forrest, for joining us. Um, see y'all next time.